get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The snap is good, the ball put down, the kick is up, and no good! Wide right! Wide right! The Bills kicker missed a field goal! Wide right! Jubilation for the Chiefs' sideline! 143 to go! Bass missing wide right from 44! Hands Pacheco over the right guard on the hash, digs and falls through the first down at the 45 of Kansas City! The Chiefs have gotten a first down, and Buffalo's going to take a timeout. This is amazing. The Chiefs are going to a sixth consecutive AFC championship. They'll take on Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens next week on Westwood One. And complete silence in this building. Stunned silence. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. I am back at the exact right time. What a game that was last night, ladies and gentlemen. The Kansas City Chiefs advancing to their sixth straight AFC championship game with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes at the helm. They have never not made it to the AFC championship. The only team in the history of the league that has made it to championship weekend in six consecutive seasons. Alex, that to me was the single most impressive performance, though, by the Chiefs in the Mahomes era. And the reason why is pretty simple, man. It's the context of what this season has been. It is what the opponent is in the Buffalo Bills. Everybody, most people, I will say, I don't want to speak for everybody. Most people believed the team you don't want to play heading into these AFC playoffs because of how well they had played down the stretch of the season, which was fair. They were playing legitimately well heading down the stretch. Josh Allen playing at a borderline MVP caliber level once again. You got to go on the road this time for the first time in the Mahomes era. And Alex, despite all of that, despite the game going basically exactly as the Bills would have hoped, held the ball for 37 minutes, ran 31 more plays than the Kansas City Chiefs did, forced a fumble, we'll get to this later, that went through the end zone and gave the ball, instead of being six points for the Chiefs, gave the ball back to the Bills at the 20-yard line, and still, despite all of that, oh, by the way, a little fumble luck as well, when Josh Allen fumbled that ball and it goes straight into the arms of a Bills offensive player, all of that at home, in the playoffs, at the hands of Patrick Mahomes, and Travis Kelsey and Andy Reid again. Again, for the third time in the last four years, I am so sorry, Donnie Fandango. No, I'm not. Your team had its heart ripped out from it 
against the Kansas City Chiefs. That was awesome last night, dude. I got legit fired up after that game last night. Yeah, fired up. So you had to mute the text chain between me and T-Bone and BK because he couldn't handle the trash talk in the beginning stages mm. of it. And he was like, ah, I'll talk to you boys at I nine. I didn't need it. I didn't no need coincidence it. that it worked. And he's like, oh, hey, guys, I'm back. Then guess who muted the group chat? This, this guy. guy. I was told by 10, though, and it didn't happen for the Chiefs. Look, it was an impressive win. It was 940. They made quick work of it. Yeah, it wasn't 10, though, so it looks like it was only a couple, which doesn't matter. Uh, it was an impressive win. I, I mean, as, as as impressive as it was for Patrick Mahomes, I was just as impressed by what Steve Spagnuolo and that defense did against for Buffalo, sure. finding ways to force them to not be able to cre- and create any offense in that fourth quarter. I was impressed by Isaiah Pacheco because he turned it on late into that game. But you're right. I, I mean, Patrick Mahomes went through it this season to the point of his entire team can't catch the ball. Travis Kelsey looks old. Kadarius Tony was a liability every time he stepped onto the field and Patrick Mahomes went into that game and went toe-to-toe with the Buffalo Bills offense that went into that game as hot as you can ask them to be. So it, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to sit here and act like the Chiefs didn't do a pretty impressive accomplishment. It's just deflating because, man, if you're Josh Allen, you gotta be like, I need to get out of the AFC. <laughs> Because it's like uh, every time I go up against this guy, and credit to him, my guy was slinging it last night. It's just Stephon Diggs forgot how to catch a football, and next thing you know, you're not getting your first downs, and then, of course, you don't kick the field goal. But if I'm Josh Allen, I got to be like, man, it might be time for me to go elsewhere because Patrick Mahomes is my kryptonite, and it might just not be Patrick Mahomes. It's just Kansas City is my kryptonite. Yeah, I I was really impressed, and I I thought Josh Allen played well, except for at that very last drive, he kind of started to get impatient. And when you play the Kansas City Chiefs, and this is what makes that game so impressive because early on in the first, I don't know what it was, two drives, three drives, they are having their ball just run down their throat. I was like, oh my gosh, did Buffalo... Did Buffalo find something here? And then Casey started to adjust, held them negative rushing yards in that fourth quarter. And then you look at the Kansas City Chiefs and you go, okay, Mahomes' numbers weren't gaudy, but he just played a perfect football game, taking what the defense was willing to give him. They averaged eight yards per play. Yeah. Every time they ran a play, on average, they gained eight yards and on I that And I just don't play. understand how they stopped doing that. The, the Chiefs? No, I'm sorry. The Bills. The, oh, the Bills did not average eight no, yards but per they, play. But the Bills running. had one of their worst offensive games of the season, but were bailed out by the turnover, by by the Chiefs fumbling the ball through the end zone. Like they they were bailed out in a couple of spots there offensively, and then they did well in the red zone when they got chances to score. They capitalized on them, whereas the Chiefs were kicking field goals and then fumbling through the end zone. So it was still a very Chiefsy performance where they moved the ball, moved the ball, moved the ball, boom, shoot yourself in the foot. But the, the the Bills were the opposite of that. Josh Allen averaged less than five yards per pass attempt in this game, guys. Less than five yards. He has done that twice this season. Both were against the Kansas City Chiefs. I think Steve Spagnuolo, to your point, T-Bone, has a little something on Josh Allen where he makes it really, really difficult on him. And I thought Josh Allen was awesome for three quarters in that game. I mean, awesome. Like, you can't ask a quarterback to play much better than what he did for the first 45 minutes of the game. But man, the game is four quarters long. And we all said it all year long. At some point, you're waiting for him to make a mistake. And I thought Josh Allen was mostly good in the fourth quarter, but there were a couple of throws that he was just off enough by. And people are having different takes takeaways from one of these plays, but one of them was the Stephon Diggs play down the field, 55 yards down the field. I think they were at their own 25. It was at the opposing 20. 
He throws it deep. It's a rocket launcher. Great throw. Diggs got to catch it. Yep. And Diggs didn't catch it. Yep. That's the guy you're paying $25 million to to make that play. And he didn't do it. And that's probably why Diggs is going to be gone along with the money this offseason. The second one, Khalil Shakir going across the middle. This is, I think, a second down play, like the 25-yard line deep into the game. And Josh Allen just misses the throw. Now, he had Stephon Diggs coming across the middle for like a six-yard crosser. Could have gotten a better third down conversion opportunity. I, I didn't mind the decision. I really didn't. It's aggressive, but you got to be aggressive to beat this Chiefs team. He's throwing it for the end zone and doesn't make the right throw. It ends up falling right in front of him. And it, like Shakir had four yards of separation. He's open in the end zone. The play worked. The scheme worked. Everything did what they wanted it to. He missed the throw. And you can't do that against Mahomes when he's playing the way he did yesterday. One thing that I think we underestimated, Mahomes always ups his game in the playoffs. Man, he's been hurt the last couple of times that we've seen him in the postseason. The ankle has been an issue for him. So I, this year he's healthy. Travis Kelsey looks healthy. That last week of the regular season when he sat out, he sure looks a little more spry now, doesn't he, ladies and gentlemen? Isaiah Pacheco looks pretty damn healthy. Chiefs are playing really well right now. And I know a lot of you are getting your jokes off on the text line right now about how the Chiefs are going to get stopped by Baltimore. Yeah, you're probably right. And you know what? I don't care. Like, am I going to feel bad in the moment when I'm watching that game? Sure. He'll probably have to meet the group chat. The Chiefs just did what everybody thought they were incapable of doing in 2024, man. Nobody thought they were getting back to the AFC Championship game. I didn't think they were getting back until last week. But they found a way because Patrick Mahomes is inevitable. There's one thing in the NFL right now that is inevitable the way that maybe more so than Tom Brady and Bill Belichick were when they were in New England doing their thing. And it's Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Those guys always get here at a minimum. This is the floor. The floor when you have those two guys on your sidelines is you make it to the AFC championship game. That's a miraculous thing to be able to say. And even though Josh Allen played well, and I totally agree with you, it's those two missed opportunities. You have to play a perfect football game if you're going to beat the Chiefs. And I, when you look at Buffalo, I, I think it was those two plays. And now, look, they did get the Chiefs did almost bail them out by fumbling it into the end zone. Um, but for the mo- for the rest of that game, Kansas City just played perfect. Patrick Mahomes isn't going to make a mistake and give you an extra possession. Chiefs got a little cute in the red zone. But otherwise, Mahomes isn't going to do the Jordan Love where he's on the run and just says YOLO and chucks it up and it gets picked off. He's not going to do the Baker Mayfield where he throws it over the seam and it gets picked off. Mahomes is going to take what you give him, and that offense is then going to turn things out the way it should. Kelsey, as you said, looks healthy. You are only going to beat the Chiefs if you play a full, full game of just perfect football, mistake-free. In Buffalo, for the most part, they played mistake-free, but it was two plays in the end that really just haunted them. And as much as it's going to be the narrative about Josh Allen and not, you know, I also look at Sean McDermott in that sense. Like, you've been in this situation multiple times, and you see other coaches around the NFL right now that have no caution in their game. Dan Campbell being the best of the bunch. Like, if you're Sean McDermott, you've been here before. You know that if you play the cautious route against this Patrick Mahomes team, you're going to lose. So, the, the throw that they did that Josh Allen didn't complete to Shakir, absolutely. That's one that you look back. it was going to be a hard throw. I've seen yeah. some texters say, oh, he got hit on that. Yeah, guys, this is the playoffs. It's the big moments. Mahomes got hit on a couple of throws. Guess what? He found a way to make them. Like, that's the difference. T-Bone, your team is the Rams, right? Jared Goff has an open throw. I think it was Brandon Cooks in the end zone in that Super Bowl. Misses it. Misses the opportunity. That yeah, was the moment. <laughs> that was the moment when... 
Sean McVay said, I got to find somebody else. If he can't make that throw, I got to find somebody else. The 49ers going up against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Jimmy Garoppolo has a deep ball that is there. It is open. It's available to him. He can't make it because he's getting hit. He's got pressure coming at him. And we know that's what happens when Jimmy Garoppolo gets pressure. He misses throws. Finds a way to get a new quarterback in there, right? He tries to take quarterback in the top five with Trey Lance. That doesn't work. Now they've got Brock Purdy. We'll talk about him later. Josh Allen is better than all of the guys that I just mentioned. He's got everything you want. He is Cam Newton in the postseason. Dude, that guy is freaking terrifying when he's coming downhill at your defense. Absolutely terrifying. He's just not consistent. He's just not consistent enough to get through three straight postseason games against these upper echelon defenses that you got to be able to beat. You got to beat Mike McDonald, the defense coordinator in Baltimore right now. You got to beat Steve Spagnolo, the DC in Kansas City. You got to beat the best of the best consecutive weeks, and you can't have those down moments the way that we saw yesterday at the end of the game. If you misfire a few different times, if you got a couple of teammates that let you down, it is really freaking hard to make it through. And that's been the story so far for Josh Allen. Alex, I think this was their best chance to make it to the Super Bowl. Their single best shot because he's on the cap for $25 million this year. It's on the cap for damn near 50 next season. And there's not a lot that they can do to get any wiggle room in there. Now he's worth that. You, you want Josh Allen on your team and you're more than happy to pay him $50 million. But what that means is Mitch Morris probably isn't coming back their center. Deion Dawkins might not be back. Their tackle. Probably Stephon Diggs is going to have to go elsewhere. Their number one wide receiver, even though it was a weird season for him. They've got a couple of safeties that they got to get figured out on the defensive side of the ball. Their linebackers aren't very good. They've got a lot of questions going into this offseason. A lot of money decisions to make. Now is when it gets hard. Now you get to where the Chiefs have been the last couple of years, where Tyreek Hill has to be shipped off. you got to get rid of a couple of those older, high-paid veteran players on offense and defense. Now it gets really hard to build around Josh Allen because of the money that you're paying him. They had to capitalize this time around. Yeah, and I think that's why if you're Buffalo, now you have to look at this and say, well, we're going to be some significant changes this offseason. I don't know. I think it starts with Stephon Diggs, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what else it looks like from there. I don't think you move on from Sean McDermott. Do I think maybe you should consider it? Possibly, but you're not going to look the same. And for Buffalo, that's got to be a deflating feeling. It's probably why last night stung so much for the amount of fans we saw on the television crying, uh, because I think they saw the reality. They saw the writing on the wall that this team is not going to be as good as they have been these last couple of years, at least on paper. And that's going to be a tough thing for Buffalo to try and sell. So I I agree. It was their best chance with this current era of Bills football. I, I, not going to just completely write them off because I love some of the pieces they still have. Shakir, very good wide receiver. I mean, you saw him yesterday, seven receptions, 44 yards, and Kincaid at tight end. So they still have weapons around Josh Allen that are cheaper on the cheap end. So will they be as good as they were this year? Probably not because I'm not sure Shakir will be ready to step into that number one role if they move on from Diggs like I expect them to. But I still think they're a team that's going to be hanging around, but it's going to get even tougher now to get past Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. This was the year that they probably should have done it because they had the home field advantage. You had Stephon Diggs. You had all these weapons around defensively, and now they're probably going to start dissipating because of the cap hit from Josh Allen. Yeah, I I just that that kick at the end. I looked at Kara beforehand. And I said, I, I don't know that he's making this. There's so much pressure oh, yeah. in that moment, dude. You can feel it. Like, you can feel the amount of pressure of 30 years of Bill's history just culminate. I think he makes that if he's in Kansas City. 
I do. I think being in Buffalo, having that feeling of that stadium, their history with kickers, like, dude, it it felt in the moment like this could go sideways. And it did. I said at the moment I, he stepped on the field, I said, this is not going to go through those uprights and they are going to be screwed from and it. It was a 44-yard field goal. Like, that's not the hardest thing in the world. But, dude, in that moment, it feels and like it's that 70. wind. Yeah. yeah, that wind wasn't I, doing it when, well. When he did, feels like, okay, maybe he's got a shot. And then when I heard Jim Nance go, yeah, he went one for three last week. And I went, oh, this is a miss. Ah, damn it, This Jim. is relying too much on the kicker. This is a miss for sure. I mean, it's just, it, it's tough, man. And so if you're a Bills fan today and you're thinking to yourself, how, it, it just might not happen for my team. You've got the quarterback in place. That's the hardest thing to figure out. Now you got to build around him, and now is when it gets tougher to do that because of the money situation. I think this was their best chance to be able to get through Kansas City. Unfortunately, Mahomes just put together one of his most flawless games that I've seen him play in a Chiefs uniform. He missed two throws. They were both on the exact same possession. They were both in the end zone, one to the left corner, one to the right corner of the end zone. They ended up kicking the field goal on that drive. After that, basically perfect the entire rest of the way. The list of NFL quarterbacks on the road divisional round or championship weekend to average at least nine yards per attempt throw two touchdowns no interceptions no sacks by the way was not sacked a single time in that game last night it's one player was Patrick Mahomes it happened last night he's the only player in the history of the league to do what he did last night on the road in a divisional round or a championship game so that was not anything that as a Bills fan you should feel bad about you got Mahomes not the first team, won't be the last team. He is the best player in the world, and all season long, people try to make arguments otherwise. He's showing us once again in the biggest possible stage. He is still that dude. And also gets the officials that help him out every once in a while. He's Alex, that's T-Bone on BK. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll talk about the officiating. We'll talk about the rule that we all agree needs to be changed, and I I feel better about it that you guys are on my side. We'll get into that coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next... There's a big story for the Cardinals that came out while I was down in Orlando. Matt Carpenter's back, baby. How are we feeling about it? We'll talk about it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Well, when you look at our everyday club and you have Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arnato, and, you know, again, referencing back to the Pujols, Molina comments earlier. I, I feel like last year, those two guys were kind of left with having to, to pick up a lion's share of this. Um, well, they were. And just having that being able to spread out was something that I think was important. And so, you know, as we were looking at who this type of person could be, you know, Carp understands exactly the cardinal way of doing things and, and what he was brought up with, but he also understands, you know, the group of players we have. Alongside Alex and T-Bone on BK, that was John Mozeliak on Friday talking about the addition of Matt Carpenter, who everybody knew the Cardinals needed to come back. He is clearly the missing link. Matt Carpenter, by the way, will join the show coming up at 12 o'clock. So tell your friends, Matt Carpenter, the former Cardinal, now current Cardinal, will join BK and Ferrario coming up at noon. Alex, I, I saw a lot of freaking out about this while I was down in Orlando. I was getting ready to go to bed. I was checking the tweet machine and... Oh, boy, people are big mad about the addition of Matt Carpenter. I don't have it in me to be mad about this. Now, that's not to suggest that I'm, like, thrilled they brought back Matt Carpenter and that this is going to be some Albert Pujols type of reunion. I I don't really feel that way. But 
I think some have brought up the Taylor Motter role, and I think that's pretty fair. I think that's what he's here to do. I think he's going to, his role on the field will be, you're our new Taylor Motter. You hang out with Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt. You bring good vibes to the clubhouse, and that's kind of Did Taylor Motter hang out with Goldschmidt and Arenado? Oh, the Lars did, but he was hard on the thing. I, was uh, saying, I, think, like, I think Motter kind of stuck to his own area. <laughs> I saw him on the field a lot more than I wanted to, too. Yeah, fair. We'll get into that. Yeah. Um, the flow the, bros. Remember the Trace Barrera situation where we talked to Katie, and we were like, why are they carrying three catchers? Now that makes a lot more sense. And Katie was like, because guys like him. <laughs> we are like, wait. You can stay in the big leagues because guys like you, and the yeah. answer was yes. Guys, because Guys like Nathan Walker on the Blues, but at least he scores goals. Well, when you're the 26th man on a roster, first of all, you got to accept your role. That's a big part of this. And I think Matt Carpenter, as a 38-year-old dude, understands what his role is going to be. We'll talk to him about it. We'll, we'll find out what he, he wants his role to be, what he sees his role as being. But I think if you when he answers that question, Alex, my guess is he'll say this. I'm coming here to help lead inside of the clubhouse. I'm coming here to lead by example when it comes to what it takes to put in the work to get your swing right, what it takes to become a professional. And I think that's why he's back. Like, it's really that simple. Now, does it speak highly of Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado that they needed to bring Matt Carpenter back for that role? I I don't know. That That, to me, is a bit concerning, but... I think that's why he's here. I think he's here to be a paid friend to Nolan Arenado. I think that's the real reason why he's back here in St. Louis. I could have done that. I could have been a paid friend for Nolan Arenado. I think Nolan yeah, was too. pretty. I think Nolan did not enjoy last season at all. Yeah, but and you know why you didn't enjoy it? Because they weren't winning. Agreed. More talented. I, 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 I'm with you. You guys know where I stand on all of this. I think Nolan believes part of why he was so miserable was because there wasn't enough veteran leadership, veteran presence inside of that clubhouse. Remember when he said they were really young and we all looked around, we were like, dude, you ain't that young. Like, this team say, is not very young right now. What old, are you talking actually. about? Well, they got older for better or worse. And I think that is in part because Nolan told them we are too young. We are too inexperienced. And so that's why Matt Carpenter's here. That's why Sonny Gray's here. That's why Lance Lynn is here. And that is why Kyle Gibson is here. Yeah. Look, I, I it has nothing to do with Matt Carpenter. I think it's awesome that Matt Carpenter gets to potentially end his career. I would imagine this might be the last hurrah. And I think it's awesome he gets to end it where it started. I think it's awesome he gets to end it what kind of kicked off his Major League Baseball career. And he gets to end it around good people and in a role like this. I think that's all awesome. And I'm really excited for Matt Carpenter. I think it says more about the team, and I think that's where my frustration comes from because not only does it say a lot about Arenado and Goldschmidt, but I said this on Friday, I I think this also, to me, shows that John Moselak is very scared of the roster that they put into place, and they have to have a lot of guys who have winning mindset around them because they're not sure they can win with just these guys. And maybe that's true, maybe that's not true, and maybe Matt Carpenter is just the good vibes and you want somebody to be here to lead some of these younger players. But the the bigger issue with this is more about what the roster can do throughout this season than worrying about Matt Carpenter being a part of it. Because I think Matt, Matt Carpenter still has a great eye for the baseball. I think he can still draw walks. I think Matt Carpenter could be a, 
a late bat addition that could at least do damage at times throughout the season. I think the bigger issue here is we have to go out and find a Matt Carpenter and bring in a Yadier Molina and bring a Daniel Descalzo and bring back a Lance Lynn because we don't want to spend the money for the top players, but we're not sure the roster we have in place can get the job done. Yeah, my biggest thing with it is, and I've said this from the Blues perspective, and I'll say it here on the Cardinals perspective. The reason they were bad last year wasn't a leadership issue. It was a talent issue. They didn't have a good enough rotation. And I thought they brought in enough leadership. And the fact that they want to continue to go, well, we got to bring guys who work the old Cardinal way. I heard Stoltz say this on Friday. Can you not change Cardinal way? Can there not be a new leadership core that comes up? Like, we talked about it after winter warm-up. I, it sounds like Brendan Donovan's going to be a leader of this squad. I, I the, the issue I have with the signing is, for, first off, Carpenter... Serving as this 26-man role, if he is in the minor role, guys, the Cardinals are once again back to playing with one arm tied behind their back because last year they played with a 25-man roster when they had Taylor Motter, when they had Trez Barrera for the good vibes. Uh, it's the same thing again. And, and like maybe Carp surprised me and he's above league average and he, they, they can find a legitimate role to where he comes off the bench and can do something for this squad. But it's hard for me to look at the numbers in three of the last four years being below league average and say, Okay, did we really have to bring up this guy to take a spot on the 26-man roster and the 40-man roster for leadership when that should be taken up by all the other signings? If they needed somebody to teach the younger guys how to go about getting the swing right through a season, hire an advisor that can do that. I I don't know. I, I get it. It's not that big a deal with this signing, but it just feels like they're back to saying we're playing with a 25-man roster while the rest of the big leagues is going with 26. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. By the way, you guys can watch us on YouTube as well, youtube.com slash 101ESPN. We're always available over there, especially if you're at home today. Not a whole lot of people out on the roads, to say the least. Totally understand. Um, thank you all for, for sticking with us as, as you're at home, if that ends up being the case. Stay safe and uh, certainly stay warm out there. Somebody from the 618 said, guys, you have no facts to back up Car- Carpenter's potential effectiveness at the plate, all of his recent statistics point to an absolutely burned-out player at the plate. Have any of us brought up anything about his effectiveness at the plate? I mean, I said that I that I still think he can recognize a pitch, and I still think he can be at least decent at the plate for you in short sample sizes. But I'm not sitting here acting like the guy's going to come up and hit 300 for you. What I'm saying is, can he draw a walk late in the game yeah, for you? I think he can have a 300 on-base percentage for you. Yeah. Somewhere around there. And I think that's what Taylor Motter provided you. Yeah, like worse. Yeah. And, and <laughs> You're right. So like there's, Tres Barrera? Yeah, the, the expectations are incredibly low. And that's okay. The expectations for your 26th man, no matter who it was going to be, were incredibly low. Alex, this is, this is where I, I push back against the notion of like, this is some huge deal. So... I think these players are locked onto your roster for opening day. If I say a name that you guys disagree with me on, feel free to shout it out. But I think these players are locked onto the roster in some role or another on opening day. Contreras and Herrera, Goldie, Gorman, Donovan, Wynn, Arenado, Walker, Edmund, Newtbar, Carlson. You guys agree with everybody that I just said? All of those players, I believe, are locked onto your roster. Yep. That's 11 position players. I think the next man up is Alec Burleson as your 12th position player. So if we agree on all of that on the front end, the players that Matt Carpenter will be competing with for the final roster spark are as follows. Luke and Baker, Jose Fermin, Buddy Kennedy, some gentleman with the last name Young that I don't remember what his first name is, to be honest with you. And that's it. Jared Young, man. Is it Jared Young? It's Jared Young. Jared from the Diamondbacks. Those are the four guys that he's competing with. Baker, Fermin, Kennedy, and Young for the final roster spot. If he takes one of their roster spots... Hey, man, 
Far be it for me to like speak ill of any of those players that I just mentioned. I don't care. I have no issue with that whatsoever. Now, T-Bone, you brought up something in the office earlier today, though, that could be an issue. On opening day, I'm more than fine with this structure. And this being the team that they go into the season with, it's $740,000. This costs them essentially nothing. And so there is zero risk, in my opinion, to making this move early in the season. What could happen, though, is as you continue on in the regular season, there could be risk of opportunity cost of that roster spot actually blocking somebody that matters. Yeah, and of all those names that you said, and I said this on Friday because we ran through the 40-man roster, it wouldn't shock me if Carpenter's like 15% below league average, and yet he's still better than most of those guys that we just named. Where I get concerned, and I kind of brought this up on Friday, is what happens if you've got, let's say Burleson makes a team, we didn't throw his name on there. No, so you've got your, ro- you've got said your he's roster. Yeah, he's yeah, the 12th. Well, okay, well, let's, there's your roster. And so you don't really want to send Burley down. But you still got one more. Yeah, well, Carp, Carp's the guy. Carp's okay, the 13th I, I gotcha, guy. Gotcha, gotcha. So you don't want to send Burley down. You can't send Herrera down. And you don't, you're not going to send Carlson down. Okay, now, now we're, we got Matt Carpenter's 13th man. What happens when Thomas the JC starts really hitting? Yeah, what happens it. when Victor Scott's ready to break onto the scene? <clears throat> You know, that's when it starts to become a question because, though, yes, in hindsight, this is a no-risk deal. And I go, yeah, $740,000. They could easily DFA $740,000. The problem is it's a, different, it's a different element when it's a Cardinals legend, a guy that's going into the Cardinals Hall of Fame. Now, maybe they're more willing to do it this time because it is the league minimum compared to last time when he was on, like, whatever it was, $15 million salary. That I get. I just don't know if they're going to be willing to pull that Band-Aid off because – it's a different story. You bring him in, this thing fails. It is. It's not a. It's not as easy as. Oh yeah, that's just like a buddy Kennedy that we're DFAing. Sure. That's a future Cardinals Hall of Fame. And that twenty sixth man roster spot, or that twenty sixth man, the thirteenth roster for or uh, position player. Like you're basically banking on the other twelve guys to be great offensively for you. And maybe not, that's how it should I'm, be. I'm banking on like eight or nine of them to be good offensively for but you. But what happens if you need help offensively and Thomas and JC's crushing the baseball? Then he comes up. And if he doesn't, then we can crush him then. And Alex, this gets back to our off-season th- conversation where you were pre-mad and you ended up being correct. I was I was not only wrong, I was loud wrong about the Cardinals going out and being more aggressive because they view it as being unacceptable what took place last year. I was wrong on that. They clearly believed that was more of a one-off and that if you just patch this thing together, it's going to get corrected. I, I don't know that I agree with him on that, but... It's a different conversation. Going into the season, I can't be mad at them for not bringing up Thomas Sejaci and doing or and holding him down in, in the minors because of Matt Carpenter before I see them do that. My my guess is if Thomas Sejaci is coming up to the big league level, they're only doing that if he has a specific role in mind, and that only happens if Alec Burleson fails or if Tommy Edmond is hurt or Mason Wynn struggles or Brendan Donovan, some of the arm issues come back together or Nolan Gorman has back issues. Like if some of that stuff starts to rise, I think that's Thomas Ajaycee's path to the Major League Baseball roster. If that happens and they decide we're still not calling him up because Matt Carpenter is going to take on that role, then we can have the conversation. And that is a failure of epic proportions by the Cardinals. I just don't think that's going to be what they do. But if he was in the Taylor Motter role, that's what they did with Taylor Motter last season. They also had no real other options. They kept Mason Wynn down for a long time. And and as we saw, looking back on it, Mason Wynn wasn't ready offensively to come up and contribute at the big league level. So yeah, Taylor Motter wasn't ready defensively. Fair, but he wasn't playing shortstop either. So I, I don't think it was the... I, I wish they would have either brought up Mason Wynn or gone with somebody else in that spot. But 
it also was a failed season in every possible way. And so I just, I don't even care anymore. I'm like blocking out what happened last year in every scenario. If they do it again, then then we should and will rightly crush them for it. I'm going to be pre-med. I, I just, I don't be, have it I'll in be me pre-med. to be upset about the 26th spot on the roster going to Matt Carpenter, who's going to be here because he's friends with Nolan Arnott. It's just because Patrick Mahomes won. If Patrick Mahomes lost, he'd probably <laughs> be pre-med with us. True. Mentally, you know? physically, True. emotionally, spiritually, I'm in a very Steve good and spot I right are now. miserable human beings right <laughs> now. So teams have been gone from the playoffs <laughs> yeah. for a week, yeah. okay? T-Bone's team was bounced. My team lost. The Blues haven't been very good. Like, I could be pre-med, damn it. I had to I'm coming sit in the back cold. from vacation. Yeah. Alex is getting ready yeah. to leave for vacation. Yeah, I got another week. There's a Western Canada road trip starting tomorrow. I could be pre-med, damn it. ice outside. (laughs) Or water, whichever one you prefer. (laughs) All right, coming up next, the NFL. Something that I am actually upset about. The NFL has got to change this rule. We'll tell you about it next here on 101 ESPN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Comes the call. You can tell by the crowd, Jim. The ball came loose in the player's possession before his hip hit the ground. The ball then rolled through the, the end zone. It is a touchback. It's Buffalo's ball. First down. Boy, a trick play near the goal line. Will haunt the Chiefs. Hardman fumbles. Miko Hardman, the big trade deadline acquisition for the Chiefs. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. That audio courtesy of CBS. Alex, I thought last night that was going to be the rule that was changed because of yet another Chiefs versus Bills moment. If you remember a couple of years ago. Exactly. A couple of years ago, it was actually the opposite, where the Chiefs ended up winning in overtime against the Bills because the Bills never had an opportunity to, to, to touch the ball. Well... That rule has since been changed. Now, Josh Allen gets an opportunity in the in the overtime session to be able to match whatever the greatness is that Patrick Mahomes couldn't get there because Tyler Bass doesn't know how to kick. So that rule has been changed. I think this will be the next one to change. And thankfully, for my own sake, it didn't end up costing the Kansas City Chiefs. Alex, this is not sour grapes. I've been on this radio station talking about this specific rule for a half decade. I think it is the worst rule in all of pro sports. And I know there are some that say, well, BK, every rule benefits the offense. Can we please have one that benefits the defense? And my answer to that is a resounding no, you cannot. Uh, Not in this regard. (laughs) I think it's silly that we treat the end zone differently than we treat any other area of the field. And even if I concede that to a degree, Alex, there's a way to benefit the defense that doesn't require you handing over possession when they do not get possession of the football. If the defense gets possession of the football in the end zone, it's touchback. Nobody disagrees with that. If the defense never gets possession of the ball and it simply goes, and for those that aren't didn't don't remember the play, McCall Hardman is going around the uh, the end of the line, right? He's, he's got a jet sweep and he reaches the ball 
towards the end zone. It is hit out of his hands and goes out of the end zone. And when that happens, it is a touchback that goes to the opposing team. The defense gets the football. That's ridiculous. It should not happen that way. I am fine with penalizing the offense in that scenario. But the way to do so is by putting them back at the 20-yard line. If you want to give the offense a penalty for reaching over the towards the goal line and being undisciplined with the football, fine. Take them back 20 yards from the one-yard line where they would have otherwise been when they fumbled that football because everywhere else you treat this as wherever they fumbled the ball and it goes out of bounds, it goes back to where they fumbled it from. In this spot, if you want to go similar but a little different, take them back to the 20. But we cannot just hand over possession of the football to the defense willy-nilly because a guy fumbled through the end zone. That is an absolutely asinine and archaic rule that needs to be changed in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't really care that it was just that game. Like, just in general, I think it's a rule that stops the momentum of a football game. It just, like, sure, it was exciting last night. Don't get me wrong. Like, I was pumped for it. But I do think it's just a little ridiculous that all of a sudden, one simple play like that takes the ball out of the team's hand and goes back the other direction. I like your idea. Put it back on the 20-yard line. Discipline or Penalize the team for doing something dumb like that. They should be. But to just take the ball out of their hands where if a... If a yard shorter and it just bounces out of bounds, then it's just their ball still. And it's just, oh, it's dead play. I, I just think it stunts the momentum of a football game, and you're taking some of the reasoning away. Let's say that game does go the direction that the Chiefs lose. Everything is going to be complaining about that dumb rule. Just take that out of the equation so you don't have to let it, let it be the deciding factor in such a monumental game. Yeah. I'm with you guys. I, I think the rule needs to be changed. Put it back at the 20. Penalize the offense still for fumbling the football into the end zone. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. You shouldn't award the defense for not getting possession of the football and it rolls out of the end zone. I I, I think that's stupid. And it, it still could have changed momentum that game last night because they were up, what, three at the time when that fumble occurs? And maybe they end up still settling for a field goal. And, and who knows how it ends up playing out. I mean, Josh Allen still has to then sling it for a touchdown but it shouldn't just flip momentum completely and give them the football when they didn't get it. That, that For the NFL and it's all its conversations about you have to possess the football, possess the football for you know catches, fumbles, all that stuff, for it to be this way where a fumble goes into the end zone, I, I agree with you guys. I think it's a stupid rule. It needs to be changed. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. If you fumble it out of any end zone, you lose possession. If you fumble it out of your own end zone, it's a safety and you lose possession. No need to change this rule. It's fine as is. Yeah, because every time that you go into your end zone and you're tackled, ball goes through it, whatever, it's safety. It's all treated the exact same way, right? If you... Do not have forward progress uh, outside of the end zone, and you're with the ball, the ball's out there, like whatever it is, it's going to be a safety. It's all treated the same way. That is what is different about fumbling out of the opposing team's end zone. There is no other scenario in which it's treated this way. Any other scenario, and either the offense gets possession, it's touchdown. Defense gets possession, it's touchback. Like there is no other scenario in which nobody gets possession of the football. Like you can't. You can't grab the football in the end zone and then push it forward and you lose possession of it and then it becomes like a touchback for the offense. No, that it's touchdown, period, point blank, end of story. So I, somebody else made something that's interesting about this. They, they made an interesting point. What if the play started on the other team's 20? Should the ball go back to your own 20? So like if you had an 80-yard touchdown that you fumble the ball out of the end zone, what do you do in this scenario? Again, take it back to the 20. Yeah, It's still a penalty. You should have had a 80-yard 
touchdown or 80 yards to, to the goal line, right? Anywhere else that you fumble on the field, it would just go back to wherever you fumbled it. So you fumble it from the one-yard line, it would go back to the one. In this scenario, you're penalizing the offense for being undisciplined with the football 20 yards. That is the most significant penalty of anything that you could possibly get on the football field, other than, I guess, defensive pass interference. But even an unnecessary roughness is a 15-yard penalty. This is a bigger penalty and with higher stakes because you're in the red zone at the one-yard line than anything else that happens on the football field. I'm even okay if you keep the same down. Like if it was third down, you fumble through the end zone, you take them back to the 20, and now it becomes fourth down from the 20. You basically have to kick a field goal. I'm okay with that. But what it currently is, it is far too harsh. And for what it's worth, Jeremy Fowler of ESPN.com tweeted out last night that there is legitimate momentum in the NFL in correcting this. The penalty is considered by many within the league, quote, to be too harsh, end quote. It's not just me crying as a Chiefs fan. I promise you, if this is the same exact situation that arose in the 49ers game, the Ravens game, whatever, I would feel the exact same way about it. I felt this way when it happened against the Chiefs to the opposing team, and the Chiefs benefited from it. I don't like the rule. I think it is faulty. So this is not, you could, you could say that all you want. I promise you that is not the case. There's no way that I can convince you, but it's a rule that can, should, and I believe it will be changed this offseason. The 636 makes the best point out of everybody. How about just don't, fo- don't fumble the football ever? Yeah, we should probably thought of that. No, just tell you know everybody what? in the NFL. Probably run don't... the ball with Pacheco instead of McCole Hartman. Okay. Yeah. Maybe McCole Hartman should <laughs> the be in the Kadarius. Call was infuriating. Yeah. Maybe McCole Hartman should be like Kadarius Tony. Just don't see the field for the rest of the game. Coming up next, questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. You get a question and we'll give you our answer oh. here on 101 ESPN. All right, Alex, we've had somebody text in, I think, seven different times oh. saying, hey, did you guys see that the Blues were apparently interested in Patrick Waugh to be their next head coach? What? And then the Islanders took him out from underneath them. Alex, what? I know you mentioned this report off yeah. air to us earlier today. What'd you make of it? Yeah, Elliot Friedman was the one that reported it on the 32 Thoughts podcast. He just said that, you know, from his understanding, the Blues were at least investigating the Patrick Waugh potential. It makes sense. T-Bone was the one that also brought it up. I mean, we talked about it in the beginning that, like, look, this was a guy who coached Zachary Bolduc last season and won a championship in the uh, QMJHL. I personally would have been interested in this. The, the hard part with this and probably why it didn't happen is if I understand it correctly, when Patrick Waugh was in Colorado and the reason he was let go also because they struggled was he wanted to say in terms of the roster decisions mm-hmm. and Colorado and Joe Sackick weren't doing that. So uh, the New York Islanders, I think, are a desperate team and they need somebody who can help them now. Uh, and I just don't see a head coach coming in and having a say in the roster decisions with Doug Armstrong. So that's probably why it went to the wayside. Uh, but I think Patrick Waugh is going to be really good for the Islanders because he's got a he's got a young person's mindset because he's been coaching in junior hockey for like 15 years. So I think he's going to be successful. 
and that's why I was interested in him. Had been in the QMJHL, as you said, and he coached Zachary Bolduc, and I, JR wrote a piece about it. I remember when this was, but Bolduc was like raving about Patrick Waugh. Yeah, he was and with us a, and said it too. For, for a team that's going through a rebuild, retool, I, I thought he made a ton of sense for them if they were going to go higher outside the organization. All right, a couple more quick things. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line uh, for questions and answers. Matt Carpenter, Cardinals infielder, will join us uh, coming up here in just a couple of moments from the 314. BK, when is Matt Carpenter actually going to play? I need specifics from you, please. Oh, April 17th. I don't know that there's a lot of scenarios in which he is going to make sense as a starter for the St. Louis Cardinals in 2024. It's just going to be hard to find a place where he is better than the other option. However, even last year, he was still okay in certain scenarios in terms of what he was doing as a bat. So I, I still think he's a guy that is probably going to be second or third bench bat for you coming off of the bench a couple of years ago he was excellent against right-handed pitching if you can capture some of that into a bottle after Alec Burleson is depleted from your bench if you've got like Tommy Edmond or Dylan Carlson out there in the outfield the other one will be on the bench so you can bring in Matt Carpenter as a pinch hitter then bring in the other guy to play defense for them and boom you go about it that way so that's that's probably the scenario where it makes sense. Or if Mason Wynn is coming up to the plate, you could you can make it work where you use Matt Carpenter as the bench bat. You move Edmund to shortstop. You put in Carlson in center fields afterwards. You make it work that way. I think that is the specific role in which he will be utilized. That's too much moving around. We need designated roles, BK. Fair enough. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll get into NFL quick hitters. But next, Matt Carpenter, the aforementioned Cardinals infielder slash DH, will join us next to discuss why he wanted to come back to St. Louis and what specifically the role is that he believes he can fill with this team. Matt Carpenter next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Happy to go out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by the newest and oldest St. Louis Cardinal. He's Matt Carpenter joining us here on the show. Cardinals infielder heading into the 2024 season. We're less than a month away at this point from pitchers and catchers reporting down in uh, Florida, Jupiter, Florida for the Cardinals. Matt, we appreciate you hopping on with us today, man. What's it feel like to be in a Cardinals uniform once again? Oh, man. Well, hey guys, I appreciate you having having me on. Uh, man, I, I honestly, it's been it's been so exciting. Um, you know, it's really it's kind of surreal. Uh, I, I don't think it's even fully sunk in yet. Um, just how how cool it really is. I mean, I, I would have never thought that I would get this opportunity again. Um, it, it's something that I, you know, my family and I are just beyond excited about and. You know, really just looking forward to it. I mean, putting on this uniform again means so much to me for so many reasons. Um, you know, one, just how iconic of a jersey this is and and how storied of a franchise it is. But more importantly, there's so many relationships and people that are so dear to my heart um, in and around the city of St. Louis and a part of this organization. And just being able to reconnect again with those those people and the Cardinal fans. I mean, there's just so much to look forward to. And um, lastly, and, and one of the obviously one of the more most important reasons is, is this club. Um, I couldn't be more excited for this team. Uh, I really am looking forward to uh, you know some big things happening on the field here in St. Louis. We got a really special group, and uh, you know I think the Cardinal fans everywhere should be excited about. It. 
Matt, the one that you didn't say that I'm surprised is that you get to grow your beard back because, man, I was always jealous of that beard. And uh, don't get me wrong, the mustache that you had with the Padres was impressive, but I do not like Matt Carpenter without a beard. <laughs> is it coming back? Well, Are we bringing it back yeah, it's got to be back, my man. I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, I appreciate the beard love, and I have there's a special place in my heart for the beard, and it will be back, but i got to warn you, there's just a little bit more gray in there now <laughs> than you're used to. That's all right. That's distinguished right there. It looks good when it's got gray in it. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> is that something that you're already preparing for? You got it. You, you're growing it out in the off season, or got is that to. something that'll take a couple of months during the regular season to get to? Oh no, it's coming. It's here. It'll be, uh, it'll be spring. Um, you'll everyone will get a look at it. Um, I, I uh, you know, it just wouldn't feel right to put on that jersey without the beard. <laughs> Amen to that, Matt. So, so take us take us into that conversation, if you don't mind, with John Mozalek. I mean, we heard from him on Friday about you know the the idea of bringing you back with the Cardinals. But from your mindset, what was that phone call like? You know, it was it was it was very interesting. I mean, I think everyone um, kind of, or maybe not everyone knows the story, but um, you know. Obviously, was signed back to go to St. Louis this year. Uh, I got a phone call uh, early in the off season from uh, the GM in St. Louis, uh, AJ Preller, that they were you're going to have to make a, a trade um, for financial reasons, and um, I ended up, you know, getting acquired by the Atlanta Braves. Well, not soon after that, uh, you know, the Atlanta Braves reached out and let me know that um, you know I wasn't going to be a part of their team going in the you know for the 2024 season going forward and, and that they were, um, you know, looking to trade me, uh, and also potential opportunity to, um, release me and let me, you know, be a free agent. And, um, so, you know, with that in mind, you know, I didn't really know what was going to happen for, you know, a couple of days I was kind of left in limbo wondering if maybe I was going to get traded somewhere or if I was, you know, I didn't really know what my, my future kind of was looking like for this upcoming season. And then, you know, they ended up releasing me, and um, you know, obviously, when you get released from a major league team, you become a free agent. Well, I got a phone call. Um, well, my agent got a phone call from Mo like that very day, and I, I was really caught off guard. I mean, it was one of the last teams that we thought. I mean, we had kind of talked. Anytime you go through a situation like that, you kind of or you know go over with your agent some of the teams that you think might reach out, and we had a list and. But a lot of that list uh, actually happened. My agent was right about a lot of them, but the one that we just wasn't on our radar at all was St. Louis, and um, and they were one of the first teams to call. And obviously, I was super excited about that potential opportunity. And you know, I, I want to make very clear, and I think people know. I mean, my heart is in the city of St. Louis. My heart is with this organization. I love this place. I I, I was raised in this uniform, and. I couldn't be more thrilled, uh, you know, to be back. And so when that opportunity presented itself, um, you know, I jumped all over it and, uh, you know, here we are and I'm looking forward to, you know, what this, what, what's in store for this group and this year. And I'm really excited, very optimistic of, uh, what this team's going to be able to do going into this season. Matt, I am curious when, when you talk to Mo and you're going through what your role's going to look like for this team in 2024, what, what was that conversation like? Well, I was very honest. Um, you know, Mo, you know, was like, look, I mean, you know, we, we see you as a, a left-handed bat off the bench who can give us a good at bat. Um, you know, we see you as a guy who can, 
you know, give Goldie a day off at first base when he needs it. I mean, you know, which we all know that guy is a machine over there and doesn't need many of those. Um, but, you know, m- and most importantly, you know, just being a guy, that, you know, that brings a lot of experience, um, has been through a lot of adversity, um, been through, had, had great seasons in St. Louis, had some tough seasons in St. Louis, has, you know, just really, you know, been through a lot and um, can help, you know, maybe speed some of the learning curve for some of the young position players that we have on this roster. And um, I couldn't be, you know, I was, I couldn't have been more excited about that. Um, you know, when, I, at this point in my career, the things that I get the most pleasure in is that, you know, and I, there were so many guys that wore this uniform before me that played such a huge role in my own personal development, you know, guys like Matt Holiday and Lance Berkman and Carlos Beltran and Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina and, and even some of the ones that I never played with, but that were just in our clubhouse and in our spring training, you know, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, Rich Sandys. I mean, some of these great Cardinal, you know, people and, um, you know, and not by no means do I feel like my name is on the same pedestal as those guys, but just to be able to, you know, be a guy who's worn the jersey for a long time and, and to be able to help some of these young guys, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fired up for it. So, so Matt, th- that was the one area that John Mozeliak talked a lot about, that leadership that you can provide in that clubhouse. And, I mean, you've been uh, in the league for 13 years. Uh, in these last couple of years, playing with the Yankees, playing with the Padres, what goes into that leadership role for a player at your level? You know, uh, that's a great question. I mean, one thing that I've kind of learned over the years, um, you know, one of the things that I've adopted as a leader is, you know, it's not really, it's not like you've got to be some kind of, you know, dictator in the clubhouse, uh, you know, and I, I, it's just not what I've found has been the best, you know, way uh, of, of leading. I, I think that, you know, it's really important for me and, and I'm going to quote, uh, you know, Lance Lynn, me and I, Lance and I just talked about this this last week. It's really important for us as older players to be able to give these young guys on our roster a voice, make them feel like they're a big part of what we're trying to do and that their opinion and their, you know, personality and who they are matters and that we want them to be the best version of themselves. You know, I think that, you know, what happens a lot of times, um, you know, in major league clubhouses, well, I don't want to say a lot of times, what can happen in a major league clubhouse sometimes is, a disconnect from older guys to young guys, um, whether it be just from age or whether, you know, the fear of speaking up or, you know, even what I was talking about earlier, where the, you know, the older player feels like he has the right to, you know, boss a, a young guy around. And I do think that there is a time and place to step in and say, Hey, look, you know, this is how we do things here in St. Louis. There's a, there's a, obviously an expectation and a cardinal way. And we all know what those things look like, but, at the same time, it's important for those young guys to have a voice in that clubhouse and to feel like they belong and um, that they're, you know, they're a part of it. And, uh, you know, that's been something that I've learned as I've gotten older and been a part of different clubhouses and being around different groups and something that I really, really want to lean on uh, in, in this season going forward. You know, man, I, I think it's a fascinating conversation because we talk a lot about this on the hockey side in terms of dealing with younger players in the game now compared to what it was when you got into the league. How difficult is that working with younger players now compared to what it was when you were one of those younger guys? Well, you know, and that's kind of what I was getting at. Like, you know, the game has changed so much um, just in the in the time that, you know, when I first got broke into the league. I mean, you were – you felt like um, – 
you know, as a young player, you, you, you just kind of needed to keep your mouth shut and, you know, just find how you find a way to fit in and just do your job and, and, and kind of, you know, really just stay out of the way. And I feel like what good teams and what has happened over the course of, you know, the last 10, 15 years is, you know, obviously for many reasons, one being the game has gotten super young. Um, there's a lot of more younger players around, but I think you just learn over time that there's a better way of doing things. And, um, you know, one of the things that I was very fortunate, um, and I got to kind of see develop, you know, through some of the better teams we had in St. Louis was we did a good job of that. And, um, you know, some of those older guys were really good at making the young guys feel like they were a part of it and, um, you know, giving them a voice. And so that was kind of how I learned um, that this is kind of the right way to do it. And, you know, we, what's unique about this roster is we've got a really unique mix of, you know, we've got kind of some top end, guys that are closer to my age um some so there's a big group of veterans but there's also a ton of up and coming you know young superstar caliber players um so it's a good balance and i think we can both um help each other uh you know when you have that good that good mix of young and and, and veterans um it can excite it can ignite a clubhouse because those guys bring so much energy and then you know we can hopefully impart some wisdom and experience to kind of make it all work. We're talking to Matt Carpenter for another couple of minutes. Uh, newest Cardinal here on 101 ESPN coming back for the 2024 season. It was announced late last week that that would be the case. Uh, Matt, I, I'm not sure how specifically to ask this question, honestly. I'm, I'm having a tough time finding a way to formulate it. But last year was hard on Nolan Arenado. And you have a good relationship with Nolan. You have a good relationship with Matt Holiday, who's also a good, good friend uh, with Nolan. And he was asked in a conversation with Katie Wu about your presence being back inside of that clubhouse. And he spoke incredibly highly of the importance of specifically bringing you back to St. Louis to help inside of that clubhouse with some of the leadership role that last year uh, fell on him. What is that going to be like for you to be to be back with Nolan here in St. Louis and to share some of those responsibilities with certainly he and Paul Goldschmidt? Well, um, you know, I want to make sure it's it's something that is really hard to understand unless you've been kind of in a clubhouse and you 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 see the dynamic of what it is to be a guy like Nolan Arenado or Paul Goldschmidt and be be required to kind of you know wear the brunt of you're the face of the franchise the pressures of going out and performing at an everyday level and you know being ready to post and play 162 games every single year and, you know, put up big numbers and lead and be an example. And there's a lot of pressure that goes in that. Neither of those guys shy away from it. They're, they're very capable and they do a very good job of it. But at the same time, you know, one thing that I personally, you know, remember and have been through myself, you know, at, you know, some of the earlier on, you know, in the middle of my career in St. Louis, when I was an everyday player and, you know, feeling the pressure of trying to perform and, and be that guy is, it really does help when you have a player who's a veteran guy who's kind of on that bench and just somebody that, you know, everyone can, you know, go up and have a conversation with when things are, you know, getting crazy or, or you know, a word of encouragement or pull a guy aside or be a guy who has that ability to, you know, see the things that are happening so that, you know, guys like Paul and, and Nolan can focus on, you know, what they need to focus on to be great players. It's hard to have a pulse on the clubhouse and be aware of maybe where things are getting a little sideways or where, you know, 
losing some an edge in a certain area and go out there and perform and play at a high level. It takes a special person to be able to do it. I haven't played with many that can do it. You know, it's really, really hard. So having having some eyes on the bench, having a, a guy in the clubhouse um, whose baby plate and responsibility of playing isn't as much of a burden as, some of, as, as a guy who's in there every single day, it just helps carry the load. And, um, you know, I think it's important – you know, for them to have those kind of guys. And, and I don't want, you know, I say all that to preface too, that, you know, I, I think it's very important for, you know, Cardinal fans to know that neither of those guys shy away from it. They, they, they own it and they do it, but I'm just saying it, 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 it helps to have another, another guy to help lighten that load. Matt, final question that I've got for you. And thank you so much for the time today. That was a really interesting answer, by the way. Um, when, when you look at what it's going to be like for you this year, you've got Lance Lynn. You mentioned you had a conversation already with him about what it's going to be like leading this team. You, you've got Daniel Descalso as the bench coach heading into this season as well. Is it a bit of a reunion for you guys from the early 2010s Cardinals teams that are taking place this year? Certainly, um, you know, but... I think all of us uh, are, aren't really, you know, getting together and, you know, reliving the glory days. I mean, we're really focused on what what this group and what we are going to do as a group going forward in 2024, what that looks like. I, I think that, if anything, you know, our past experiences and what we've been through, both good and bad, I mean, every every single guy that you just mentioned has had, you know, successes and failures um, in this organization and in other organizations and just – getting us all together, getting all those minds together and, and, and bringing that um, into this room and hopefully rubbing off on everybody around us and, and trying to build something special this season. Uh, I feel really good about it. I think, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are going to be surprised with what, you know, what happens here this season. I, I really, really believe in this group of uh, players and, the staff that we put they put together that most done a great job and um, man I just I, I, I couldn't be more excited for this upcoming season. He's Matt Carpenter, newest Cardinal, signed to the team last week. He will be in spring training with the team once again. Hey Matt, we appreciate the time, man. Good to have you back here in St. Louis. Certainly excited to see that beard back here, and uh, we'll talk with you again soon. Yeah, I'm going to start growing my beard in, <laughs> in compliments to you coming back, Matt. And see if I can get it looking as sharp as yours. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks again for having me on. Absolutely. That's Matt Carpenter. Appreciate him hopping on with us, uh, joining us here on BK and Ferrario. So I, I think what he said there about the pressure of being the guy. Yeah, I think he shed a, a shed a lot of light on what that what goes into what Arenado and Goldschmidt were dealing with. I think they felt it in a big way last year. And to be able to have somebody else that you can just pass some of those responsibilities off to. I can see how that would be meaningful and to be able to trust the guy that you're passing those responsibilities onto. I think that's also meaningful. And Alex, two years ago, they had the ability to pass some of that stuff off to Albert mm-hmm. like, and Yachty. I, I think more Albert though. Cause Yachty stuff, was in Puerto Rico. Yeah. I, I think the stuff that he's talking about was Albert. Like you think back to the conversations that were happening on the bench. How many times did we talk about, Oh, look, there's Juan Yepes, the shadow of Albert Pujols, like just constantly talking with him. Or you'd see Brendan Donovan in the dugout with Albert Pujols. Like the young guys gravitated towards him and they would just constantly be talking to him. And whether you put value on that or not, the Cardinals do. And Nolan Arenado does. And then last year, I think a lot of that 
went to Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. And when those guys are, you know, mid-30s and they're struggling in their own right, it's hard to try to get yourself right and also worry about helping somebody else get their self right, right? If you're if your life's in a really good place, it's easy to be a great friend to everybody who needs anything, right? It's really hard when you just had a newborn, your financial situation ain't great, your work life work life balance has never been more difficult, and then you got your buddy that gives you a call who's also going through a divorce. You want to be there, of course, but it's hard mm-hmm. because you've got your own stuff that you're trying to worry about as well. And I think that's what was happening last year with Arenado and Goldie. Now you've got the ability to have somebody in Matt Carpenter who can take on some of those responsibilities. Again, if you don't value that, I get it because it's hard to see the value in it from the outside looking in. But it's very clear the Cardinals do. I think the exact same thing happened to the Blues last year. I think Arenado and Goldschmidt are a little of what Ryan O'Reilly was last year and why everybody was talking about it so much. And I can understand the Matt Carpenter side of it. Like, sure, we can sit here and talk about how it doesn't look great on Goldschmidt and Arenado. That can be a separate conversation but it was very evident to the Cardinals front office and then hearing Matt Carpenter talk about it that there needed to be some life support in that locker room for the position players not so much because you have you know Sonny Gray and Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn but it's different when you've got position players against pitchers and Matt Carpenter obviously is somebody that you can pass the torch to if you're Arnano and Goldschmidt and sit here and say, okay, he can take care of this one rather than feel like I got to not only take care of the offense, the defense, figuring out how to get this team out of the rut, but also grow these younger players. People think that it's not critical for teams, but watching it over the years for both the Cardinals and the Blues, man, it is a very important aspect of that locker room. And somebody on the text line said, guys, they had Adam Wainwright last year. This is such stupid gaslighting. Pitching is uh, different than position players. I I hope you guys are I, – I hope we can make this clear. You need leaders inside of the bullpen because those guys are like kind of a click. They mm-hmm. are together a lot. And you need leaders within the rotation because those guys are together a lot. And then you need leaders inside of the position player group. And honestly, you kind of need leaders inside of your, your your batting practice groups because they go out there like four guys at a time. So you essentially have three groups that are going to be going out there for BP at any given time, and they're working together, right? And so you kind of want to have one guy that is like watching along with you in every single group. So if this year you've got Nolan Arenado in one group, Paul Goldschmidt in another group, Matt Carpenter in a third group, and maybe it's like, Wilson Contreras or Brendan Donovan in in the last group. You've got somebody that's there as a quote-unquote leader in every single one of those groups. Again, I don't want to overstate the value of this. The most important thing is that the Cardinals are talented. They they need talent first and foremost. And I think on the position player side, they're good there. They've got the talent. I question that a little bit on the rotation, but they're good on the position player side when it comes to talent. If you now want to add in as the 13th guy who's going to make the team over Baker, Fermin, Kennedy, and Young... Matt Carpenter, who's going to bring a little leadership. I have no problem with that at all. I understand people that are skeptical that say, T-Bone, as you did earlier, hey, could this be something that is a hindrance when you get to June or July? Thomas Sejaci's hitting the crap out of the baseball, and you need him up at the big league club to fill a role. Maybe. And when we get to that place, we can have that conversation. But as of today, going into the regular season, when the month of April, guys, look at the schedule. You're going to need some leadership inside of that clubhouse because there could be some rocky times. If you need a guy like Matt Carpenter to take on some of those responsibilities to bring better vibes to the room, I'm fine with that. I have no problem with it whatsoever. All right, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Alex, the Blues appear to be overly reliant to me on their top line right now. 
I don't think this is something that you can really fix in season, and I think it's something that might take a couple of years to fix. But we'll get into it coming up in about 15 minutes or so. NFL Quick Hitters coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's get into some NFL quick hitters alongside Alex and T-Bone. I'm BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. And let's start with this, Alex. Of the teams that were eliminated this past weekend, which one do you think has the brightest future? I'm talking Texans, Packers, Bills, and Bucks. Those are the four teams that were eliminated in divisional round weekend. Who has the best future outlook? I feel like it's a it's a tie between the Packers and the Texans, hmm. but to not be you know, ride the fence like we do here on BK and Ferrario, I'm going to go with the Texans because I think you saw... I mean, if you're taking C.J. Stroud yeah. one for the next 10 I, years in the NFL, I feel like it's probably I, well, correct but, that you take I mean, that. I was more impressed like Jordan Love and that offense could still find ways to be like competent against two really good defenses, but I could say the same thing with C.J. Stroud. Like, I, I think he suffered in that Baltimore game from not having all of his, what, his weapons available to him. They shut down Nico Collins and there was nothing else. If you got Tank Dell and Noah Brown in that game, I think you might be in a little bit of a different spot. So, I'll just say the Texans because of cap space and because of C.J. Stroud looking like a franchise quarterback in year one. I, I would definitely say the Texans. I, I think I think the Packers are close, but I think it's twofold for me. I, I think when you look at the Texans, based on they've got the right head coach in place, a defensive-minded coach too, and that defense is only going to take more steps forward. And C.J. Stroud, I'm not sure he has much more learning curves to go through. Like, I look at Jordan Love, and don't, don't get me wrong, I thought he was really good in these playoffs. You saw on the last throw of the game for him that there's still some learning curves sure. for Jordan Love. So I, I would say C.J. Stroud, I love Nico Collins. I love Tank Dell when he comes back and whatever else they may add. I, I think they're going to be a team that is going to be a legitimate threat. And I think Stroud's a top five quarterback for the next 10 years. Jordan Love's probably more in that top 10 category. So I'd say the Texans. Let's sweep it. We're all on the same page here. I, I'm totally with you. It to me is the, the Texans as well. I will say this. If there was something that people would probably say as a drawback to the Packers, it's, hey, they're going to have to pay Jordan Love very soon. Like, it sounds like they're going to probably hand him an extension this offseason, and they should. It's going to cost a boatload of money that they are going to have to do that. The reason why I don't think it's a huge deal, though, is because of the way that they had to operate this year with the cap. They had so much dead money from the Rodgers move that they essentially had a $60 million cap hit this year for Jordan Love anyways. So the roster around him, this wasn't some loaded team. It was the youngest offense in the NFL by a wide margin. He's actually probably going to have better talent around him, a more well-rounded team in the future when he's making $40, $50 million than he is right now. So I do think that the love for the Packers is very real, and I cannot believe that they did it again. I think Jordan Love is legit. What we saw from him this postseason against those teams, I, I thought he went up against the two best teams in the NFC that I saw this year. And he shredded both of them for the vast majority of the game and then had a really bad moment where you saw he had too much of a gunslinger mentality. It looked like Brett Favre yeah. uh, back in a Packers uniform. And he just he tried to do too much. It was right there in front of him. It's first down. You got a minute to go. You got two timeouts. Just don't make that throw. You can't throw it across your body. But there's every reason to be excited about the Packers. But I do think you guys are right. You gave all the reasons why the Texans would be number one on my list. And I will say this about the Jordan Love, the people talking about the Jordan Love extension. Though, yes, they do have to pay him sooner than like the Texans do a Stroud. 
it also means that they're probably not going to have to give him the like the top end market deal. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong; he's still going to get a pretty penny, but he's not going to be like Stroud, who Stroud proves it over five years could be like the highest paid quarterback by the end of it. They're Love. making him a top five paid quarterback in the NFL. Oh well, the if season. they're going to make that mistake, that might never be a bad mind. idea. But, but that I think you have to though. If you're his, if you're his agent, why would you expect? Why would you accept any less? Because after next season, he'll be on a franchise tag, which is the average of the top five highest paid. Time to take it to arbitration. We'll tell you why you <laughs> suck in front of the court. It, it's hard like because <laughs> there's just no middle tier quarterback anymore. It was him this year. He was making mid tier quarterback money and he proved himself to be capable. And if you're right, mind, a legit a franchise spot. caliber quarterback, you get paid like a top five guy now. Um, so good for the Packers. I, I, just, I cannot believe uh, that this is where they're at. All right. Next thing here is we go through some NFL quick hitters, the games from this past weekend. Guys, the Ravens beat the Texans 34 to 10. And I feel like nobody's talking about that game because everybody's focusing on what happened to the Packers. What what went wrong for the 49ers? The Chiefs-Bills game, certainly. People are giving love to the Lions, talking about what the future looks like with Baker. And then it's just kind of being forgotten that the Ravens went out there and in the second half absolutely shredded the Texans. What did you learn about the Ravens this weekend, Alex? That Lamar Jackson can either lose that game for you or win that game for you. Because the first half, I was like, boy, Lamar Jackson does not look like a quarterback that's going to. Lamar Jackson looks like a guy that can't get out of the first round of the playoffs in that first half. I thought defense was keeping him in that game. And frankly, I thought the fact that C.J. Stroud couldn't figure out how to play against that defense hurt Houston. But then the second half opens up, and I don't know what happened. Lamar Jackson must have had that Michael Jordan special juice or something because all of a sudden it was he was an MVP. He was running the ball. They couldn't take him down. He was finding his weapons. So that was my biggest takeaway. Like, going into this game against Kansas City, I I think the Ravens should win it. But I also think their, their caution is the fact that Lamar Jackson might not be on for one half. Yeah, I, I think when I was watching the Ravens, it showed me that they have the defense to be able to win a Super Bowl. Now, I thought Lamar was great in the second half. I'm st- I am still have questions about the offense as a whole, not so much about Lamar, because now that they're going to get Mark Andrews back, he's easily their best weapon. Now, Zay Flowers looked pretty good in that second half, and they were able to run the ball, and Lamar was great. If they can get the run game going, utilize Lamar's legs, and he takes care of the football, they've got the defense to make sure that they win football games, and that's why I think they can beat the Chiefs. Who's a better offense, the Ravens or the Bills? Which often scares you more if you're a defense? I'd say I'd say the Bills because I think Allen's got a better arm. I would say the Bills too because I also think I think he's got better weapons. Yeah, them not having Gabe Davis yeah, hurt. Yeah, I think he's got better weapons than what Baltimore has. Yeah, I think it's the Bills. And so, like, I learned over the weekend what you did. They've got a championship defense in Baltimore. I'm still skeptical of the offense, man. I like. Lamar was really good in that game. Threw for a buck fifty, no turnovers, had two touchdowns on the ground, ran for a hundred, like. That dude was a weapon in every sense of the word. And also he went up against like a bottom 10 defense in the NFL yeah. with Houston. They've got some fun stuff that they're doing defensively and they've got a couple of really good players and it's why we're all very high on their future. But it's kind of like the Blues right now. If you look at the Blues top line, you look at their fourth line, you look at their top defenseman, top defenseman, their goalie, like, okay, yeah, you see how in the future it looks good. And you see that they've got the most important pieces to a rebuild, but it's still pieces, not the full picture. The Texans aren't there yet, man. And so what he did against the Texans taught me very little. It really did. I still am scared. I don't know what it's going to look like for Lamar. And we've got plenty of time to preview this game this upcoming weekend. When he's going up against Steve Spagnolo and a well-rounded defense with all pro corners on both sides, a defensive line that's going to be able to get after him a little bit better than what the Texans did. I am fascinated to watch that matchup 
I learned about their defense in that game because the Texans just tore apart the Browns defense, who we thought was one of the best in the league all season. And then they go into Baltimore and everything looked hard. Trying to move the chains was difficult for the rate or for the Texans in that game. So I learned a lot more about Baltimore's defense and Mike McDonald, their defensive coordinator, I think should be a head coach sooner rather than later than I did what they did offensively. I thought their offense was just okay. And, and, and go, Lamar made just enough plays. And going into the weekend, I think that's part of the reason why both me and Alex took the rate, or excuse me, took the Texans on Friday. Yeah. Because I, I didn't know what the offense would look like. You guys took the Texans. Yeah, yeah. but I, I thought Stroud, because of what you just said, he shredded apart the Browns' defense. Mm-hmm. So I went, okay, well, yeah, I like Baltimore's defense, but Stroud just showed he can beat a good defense. I think he could do that again, and then we'll see what Baltimore's offense yeah. looked like. And it was actually just the complete opposite of what I thought. Yeah, I thought Stroud was going to be the better quarterback in the game. But, I mean, the difference was that the defense for Baltimore was as best as you can ask for. Somebody said, guys, the Ravens have scored 30 in almost every game so far this season. You have no idea what you're talking about. Go look in a little further. Yeah. This is what I did last week with the with the Bills, and I think we need to do this with the Ravens as well. Take a fine-tooth comb to what they have actually accomplished offensively this year. Because if you don't, and you just look at the numbers, you're going to be in awe of what they have been able to do. They scored 38 against the Lions. Lions defense is not good through the air. It is really bad mm-hmm. in the secondary. They have serious issues there, and it's why I'm concerned about them going up against the 49ers if Debo's healthy. Put up 31 against the Cardinals. You guys watch that defense for Arizona this year? <laughs> Put up 37 against Seattle. You guys watch that Seahawks defense this year? Not good. Nope, not good. Put up 31 against Cleveland. It's pretty good. Good game. Impressive. Well done by you. So did Houston. Put up 34 against Cincinnati, the worst defense in the NFL this year. Put up 37 against the Rams. T-Bone, you watched that defense on the regular. They were fine. Put up 33 against San Francisco. That's the game that everybody will point to. And just like I did with the Bills when they had a great game against the Cowboys, that's the moment. I will give the proper credit to the Ravens. That game was amazing. And that was the moment where we defined them as the Super Bowl favorite in the AFC but then put up 56 against a terrible, banged up, awful, no good, very bad Miami Dolphins defense. Like It's easy to explain away some of these things. They also deserve credit. Lamar Jackson should win the MVP, but it's not act like they're out here going up against the best of the best every week. When they went up against Pittsburgh earlier this year, they scored 10 points offensively. Indy, 19 points offensively. When they went up against Jacksonville, 23 points offensively. When they went up against... Uh, The L.A. Chargers, who do some funky stuff, even though they're not a great defense. They've got good individual game plans, but up 20 offensively. There have been plenty of down games for the Baltimore Ravens. If you're a Baltimore Ravens fan, you can't honestly sit there and say at halftime you felt good about that game. Because, I mean, even though the the Texans didn't score anything on the offense, it was special teams that did it. They also were finding ways to limit the offense for Baltimore, which is why I'm skeptical of that team when you go up against a Kansas City Chiefs roster. I like the Ravens a lot. I think they're probably going to win this weekend. I think it's going to be low scoring, and I think it's going to be tight. That's where I'm at on that game. We'll get more into that as we continue along here on BK and Ferrario. By the way, a couple of pieces of news to pass along from the NFL as well when it comes to the coaching carousel. Sounds like Jim Harbaugh is getting a second interview with the L.A. Chargers. And Tom Telesco, the former Chargers general manager, is interviewing today for the second time for the vacant Las Vegas Raiders general manager job so those are the latest pieces of news going around the nfl coming up in about 10 minutes or so we'll get to the junk drawer but next alex are the blues becoming overly reliant on their top line right now and is there any way to fix that we'll talk about it next year on 101 espn we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn
Capitals over the weekend. In fact, they uh, won in a shutout. Nah, Three whatever. Nothing. So Pennington does masterful work, and T-Bone's like, man, they didn't win. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that they won the game because they got contributions from their top line. They ended up getting a goal in that game from Braden Shin. They got a goal in that game from Jake Neighbors, but they also got assists from Jordan Cairo. They got a couple of assists from Robert Thomas. This is the kind of production that you expect from your top line. Alex, they also got 14 penalty minutes from Robert Thomas in that one. For, that a boy. For a game. Misconduct. Yeah. Oh, there we go. I got that. He was willing to fight Tom Wilson probably because he had a cage on. Well, that's true. And Tom Wilson wasn't fighting anybody with a broken nose. Alex, when you look at what the Blues have done this year, when Booch, Kairou, Thomas do not score a goal, that was one of the rare opportunities in which they actually count, found a way to win in that specific games. This year, when the Blues do not get a goal from one of those three, they are 6, 10, and 2. It's a 444 points percentage, which would be roughly the fifth worst in the NHL. When they get a goal from one of those three players, at least one of those three players scores a goal. The Blues are 16 and 10 on the season. That would be roughly a 615 points percentage, which puts you at like the ninth best team in the NHL this year. A clear cut, no doubt about it, playoff team. Alex, my question to you is, are, are the Blues becoming too reliant on one of those three players to put up the goal production? When they don't score, they don't have another way to find a way to score. Yeah, they absolutely are. I, I mean, nearly half the season, there have been games where Jordan Cairo and Pavel Buchnevich don't score a goal. And that's that's miraculous in the sense that they're an above 500 team and that's taking place. But the fact that they are a 500 team is because they don't have anybody else who steps up. Like the stat going into that game against the Washington Capitals was that the Blues were 10-4-1 when the defenseman scores a goal. So like either Thomas Booch, Kyrie are scoring and you're winning, or a defenseman is scoring a goal and you're winning. And if none of those scenarios happen, that means 9 out of the 12 forwards, if they're scoring goals, you're not winning hockey games. And to me, that's a problem because, one, you got to have secondary scoring to win games, but... If you're going to be anything more than just a bottom 10 team in the National Hockey League, you got to have more than two guys who could potentially be 30 goal scorers on your team. You got to have depth of roster. And I think they're reliant too much on that top line to be successful for them. But I also think that when those guys don't show up to play, everything else falls to the waste side. So it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword here. Like you're counting on Kyrie Thomas and Buchnevich to be great and be the difference maker in the hockey game. But if they're not, the other side's not picking it up. But more times than not, those guys aren't coming away with successful nights. Yes, they're over-relying on the top line. But to be honest with you, I'm not sure if it's much of an issue for me because I'm looking at more long-term for the St. Louis Blues. And I think they're going to have the pieces that are coming up. I think the reason you're seeing a lot of the struggles from the second and third line. He's got a lot of stopgap guys, as we talked about. And veterans, that, the, the bigger concern for me is more of the veterans that are underperforming. The Brandon Saad, the Braden Chen. Guys that I think maybe they could move on from the side contract, but I'm not 100% sure. Convinced, I'm not 100% convinced of that. So what I'm looking at in the long term, if you can't move on from those deals, yes, there is a little bit of concern for me because they do need the veterans to pick up their game a little bit. But if I'm looking at it in the long term, I still see Snuggerud, Dvorsky coming in here, uh, maybe a Balduke, a Dean make a difference on this squad. And then when they come in, can they perform in that role? Short term, it's a major issue, but I think short term, their future's already, their their fate is decided this season. It's a long term for me that I'm looking at. That's kind of where I'm at, man, is like, I don't think there's a fix for this. Yeah. 
I, I think this is just the team that you have, the hand that you've been dealt, the hand that you dealt yourself, frankly, is you, you've just got to find a way to get through the slog of this season in this regard. And are you overly reliant on this this top line to go out there and score you goals? Yeah, you, you are. And we thought they wouldn't be because we probably overestimated what they were going to be able to get from Yakub Vrana and Kasperi Kapanen. And that's the biggest difference between where you're at right now and where you were at the end of last season. Those guys were contributing. They were they were getting out there and putting up, you know, 20 to 25 goal scoring season type of production. But it was when the games didn't matter. It was super loose in the structure. And it, it just hasn't worked that way. Now, Jake Neighbors has helped out. He's He's been able to pitch in a little bit here and there. And you got at times some decent production from some of the other guys. Brandon Sod's on pace for basically another 20 goal season this year for you. But Otherwise, you, you don't have a middle six right now. You don't. And if you don't have a middle six, you can't be taken seriously as a contender in the NHL. And so we kind of got excited there for a little bit of, okay, you know, they're, they're playing well against these quality opponents on the schedule. And the truth is they've reverted back to who they are. They're, they're not a bad team. This team is better than I think many expected them to be in 2024. They have come together in a way where they are super, uh, slightly above average. That's it. That's who they are. And so there's going to be nights like Saturday where they come out and they they play pretty well overall. They play mostly a structured game. They get a decent amount of goal scoring. Bennington is really good. And you leave and you're like, okay, 3 nothing against the Washington Capitals. And the exact same team against the exact same opponent two nights prior can go out there and give up five goals, score just two of their own, and look out close, outclassed for the majority of the game. That's how this team is, man. Would it surprise anybody if they lose 5-2 to two against Calgary on the road? No, no it? I'm, I'm kind of, pre- I'm kind of that. anticipating a tough road trip. Would it surprise anybody if they go out there and win 3-1? to Because it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, no. they suck on and the road. I, I, think I, <laughs> I, I think the game, the win on Saturday was the story of, you mentioned them being above 500 and kind of where we thought they would be. It's because it's because of Jordan Bennington. Because I, I ran through their numbers, both the numbers that people like, the basic ones, and the expected ones before the game on Saturday, on before Friday's show. Eighth worst in goals for, eighth worst in expected goals for. They are eighth worst in goals allowed, sixth worst in expected goals allowed. The, the only reason they're still floating at this 500 mark and still kind of a little bit of a thought in the playoff picture is because because of Jordan Bennington. I think their bigger problem, too, is what we talked about on Friday. And I think, you know, to the point of like that top line, if they're scoring, it's it's a good night for them. I do think that they're also sitting in a spot where they have a roster issue, where they've got certain guys that decide when they want to play. And when they want to play, you get the result that you had against the Washington Capitals, where you were forechecking and you were being hard on the puck and you had top players from the first line to the fourth line contributing. And then the game against Washington in Washington was a game that they just opted not to show up and play in. I think that's more of the issue right now than just the secondary scoring. I think you've got a lot of guys that just decide when they want to bring that effort. Yeah, I I mean, you're talking about the top line, right? Those guys? Top line, yes, but I think there's also second and third line players that we're talking about in this instance that also decide when they want to bring that up or when they don't. Talk about in the middle. Like let's 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 talk about this for a second. If those guys in the middle six are they guys that are going to be around for a while? Because I I really don't care if those guys are in and out of like the yeah. effort. No, I mean. Who knows, to be honest with you, because there's a lot of no trade clauses. But yeah, I think in your top nine, you're probably talking about three to four of them that won't be here. But I think you're talking about a couple that will be. Because like, I think Jake Neighbors kind of brings the same game every night. I absolutely agree with you. The production isn't there, but I think Braden Shin's mostly the same player most nights. Um, And like, maybe that's a problem that he's mostly the same player every night for you right now. Kevin Hayes, I think 
times when it looks pretty good, times when it looks pretty bad. I, I think that's kind of who he is as a player, though. I don't necessarily know that that's an effort thing with him. I do think on the top line, there are some nights where it looks great. They're super engaged, super into it, and other nights when they don't, I think that's who they are. Like, I think that's that's just who that line is going to be, and that means that as you continue building this roster, it places more of an importance on that middle six to be able to prop them up whenever they're not out there giving you their best. And you either build it that way or you build it where these guys aren't players that we're building around. And that's really the, the decision that needs to be made this offseason is which 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 path are they going to choose to go forward? I can understand either. You just have to choose your path and then really go go all gung-ho in that regard. Coming up next, The Juncture here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. T-Bone, I'm BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line to get involved in the show. If you guys have anything you want to get involved in, we'll have in or out coming up in about 15 minutes or so. By the way, the Heisman odds just came out. Uh, Carson Beck and Quinn Ewers are the co-favorites to win the Heisman this upcoming season. It's trash. It'll be uh, Brady Cook. I would go uh, Luther Burden. He'll cook on the Luther, Heisman. Luther Burden would be my choice. He is uh, not listed among the top 10 most likely Heisman. Why don't win the award? It's probably because they Howard, lost the defensive the former coordinator. Uh, K-State quarterback, but. 12 to 1 as the uh, new quarterback at Ohio uh, State. Don't waste your money, America. Uh, yeah, don't, don't, don't do that. Riley Leonard, your boy from uh, Duke, now Ooh. at Notre Dame, 20 to 1. Don't waste your money, America. <laughs> Good job on him. All right, Alex, what do you have for us today in the junk drawer? So, guys, I was watching the most important stuff taking place on Sunday, and it's not any of the NFL division games. It was the uh, PGA Champion Tour that was the sure. American Express Tour. And there is just some trash taking place. So I don't know if you guys saw this. A 20-year-old amateur golfer, uh, Nick Dunlap, who goes to the University of Alabama, well, he won this tournament. He won it by shooting 29 under par. Very impressive for a 20-year-old. I could do that. A $1.5 million prize went to the loser of the tournament. So the runner-up got the prize money because oh, this because kid amateur? is an amateur yep. golfer. Wait, why can't he win? Because I... So, so my understanding with this is he would have to go pro... If he wanted to take the money and you yep. and you omit some of your this amateur. This is so stupid. So they it did pissed this, me off so much. They did this to Connor Vanover, right? So he entered that tournament. Um, the, the Mizzou big who it doesn't matter. They suck like it's it's whatever. Can't even crack the rotation anymore. Yeah, uh, is he, this the big man? That's not a real big yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, they they're this is an awful basketball season. Don't waste your time watching them right now. Don't waste your time, America. <laughs> go Gates. Yeah, Woo. he'll be fine next year. Just go back to the portal. Get better oh, yeah, players. Do it again. Um, so he entered a tournament that is not for amateurs. It's like a paid tournament, right? This past off season. And it was before he realized, okay, I'm gonna have an opportunity to transfer to a power five team. He, he thought he was gonna enter the draft and probably let's be honest, go play overseas. Well, he ends up getting the opportunity at Missouri, but he had already entered that tournament. He played in it. So he loses eligibility for the, I think it was like the first three games of the season. He's suspended for those because he was a part of that tournament. That's not for amateurs, right? 
This is so stupid. In yeah. the days of NIL, when these guys can make money off of their name, image, and likeness, this golfer could go to your local, I don't know, uh, Arby's or your local um, Lion's Choice, for example, and sign autographs for 10 hours for a million bucks, but he can't go out there and profit off of the fact that he's the best golfer in a field with pros. It's, That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to, to, to say you can't take the money unless you lose your amateur status when he was clear cut better than the other guy behind him. And he not only now look, it was awesome that he won the tournament and he's probably going to be in plenty of PGA tours down the road and winning tons of money. But how miserable is it because of the PGA's rules that well, it's this because of the amateur rules? Yeah, it's well, not the PGA. Amateur... This is the, this is based on his college status. But it's the, the amateur rules within the PGA because like he could he can't go back to college. Like yeah. he could take that award from the That's PGA. What, yeah. It's not it, the PGA is not the problem. This is college. This is like the NBA with their one and done rule where they they implement. It. That's college. College is the one that actually implements the rule. And then the NBA just basically follows it. Yeah, well, and this, I omit college because my career is golf and $1.5 million just went to the dude that was the runner up. Yeah, good for that guy, true. though. No. Dude, oh, yeah. Hell yeah. That guy, yeah. That guy didn't have to win. I I, he guy. probably realized who he was competing. I don't know what the score was because I wasn't watching. Yeah, the I didn't see what the guy but finished as. I, I imagine him, his caddy going, hey, you're guaranteed second. It doesn't matter because guess what? That kid can't take the money. Really? Oh, wow. This is great. Yeah. The that participation guy, trophy was $1.5 million. Hell of a participation That's ridiculous. Trophy. Good for him, man. Good for him. Stupid All right. college Coming rules. up in 15 minutes, we're diving into a game of in or out. You give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we're in or out coming up in 15 minutes. But next, if the Cardinals were, let's get optimistic for a second, to break out in 2024, they get back to their winning ways. Huh. Who's the recent World Series contender? That would be the comparison for this Cardinals team. We'll tell you who ESPN compared them to, and we'll give you ours coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Can I first, before we get to the Cardinals and how they could break out in 2024, give you guys a glimpse into what our text line has become at times? Can I bring people behind the curtain? Sure, I'm not looking at it right and now. And let people yeah, know. Yeah, I keep it closed this, on days this like this. This is what sometimes our text line can become. So somebody earlier, just a little bit ago, texted us and said, you guys should be ashamed of yourself. By the softball questions that you had for Matt Carpenter after his signing. I said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and bite. It's I just got back from vacation. My team won in the AFC divisional round last night. They are going to the AFC championship game for the sixth consecutive season. I'm in a good mood today, Alex. I am curious. I'm just, you know what? I'll take a nibble. What did you want us to ask of Matt Carpenter that we didn't ask? Because I feel like we asked most of the questions that you would want to be asked to Matt Carpenter today. Can, can I guess what he wanted us to say? You haven't seen it? No, I haven't seen oh, it. Go ahead. Can I, no, I kept the text line close today. It's a Monday. I don't need that in my life. Uh, let me guess what it had to say. Something along the lines of how about you ask him how he is supposed to bring something that no other player in that locker room can't already provide to the Cardinals. Oh, I thought maybe there's gonna be something about blocking a roster spot too. You know, that's a that's a great guess. Alex. Was it was it spot on? 
more or less. Jeez. How about not have him on? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, we can have Matt Carpenter on? And no. treat the signing like the farce that it is. They continued. <laughs> they continued. Or you could ask, with all the veterans currently on the roster... <laughs> Marmol, Scalso, McGee, etc. What would you say that you, Matt Carpenter, bring in the leadership department that those previously mentioned don't already bring? Sir, madam, if you listened to the conversation that we had with Matt Carpenter, he actually did answer that question specifically. Because we asked about the difficulty of being Paul Goldschmidt or Nolan Arenado and how he could provide leadership that they maybe can't. And he did answer the question and talked about how difficult it is in those two player spots to provide what Carpenter potentially can for this team. And he also talked about the difference of being a coach versus being a player inside of the clubhouse. So um, I apologize that we didn't ask it specifically how you wanted it, but that would have meant that we could never have Matt Carpenter again. And I'm going to be that crazy person that says, hey, I'd kind of like to have Matt Carpenter <laughs> yeah. back on the show because I think he's good at radio. Maybe he has a breakout year. It'd be great if we could have him on at that point. So, so I just I pulled. I'd up like the... to have Matt Carpenter on the show regularly if he's willing to do it. I, I think the guy is a good talker. I enjoy having Matt Carpenter on the I show. Pulled so. up the text line now because I always enjoy this when somebody like you know you should be ashamed of this just to scroll back through what some of their texts say. Uh, let me take you guys back to <laughs> January of 2023 uh, because this individual decided to text into a show that said, "Hey, it's not cool to be mean to others." I and mean, that's true. It's you not. should be nice yeah. to people. It's, it's true. And then somebody also just sent in a text that said, uh, you guys should be ashamed of your performance at softball. And that That is also, that actually, you know <laughs> what? That is a, a better representation of what we should be ashamed of. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, honestly, if I'm going to be ashamed of something, it's going to be that. Although I did hit the, the wall, top of the wall. So, BK yeah, that's, uh, that. that's where we're, we're at. By the way, Alex, have you trophies. checked your garage? Did, uh, did a fire truck hit you today? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. did a, it didn't. Um, it didn't, didn't. It didn't even hit the garage. It hit the blue Toyota Camry in the parking lot and kicked it to the front yard, and then it just lined up. Uh, no, it's a, it's a disgrace for Jefferson County to have that happen. So, uh, <laughs> you know what? But the fire department yeah, that, still got the job that's done. That's the thing that your hometown should be St. Charles, you know right. what they say. Jefferson County, lot. step up right now. This guy's yeah. trashing so our area. Glass houses, you know, the whole thing. All right, yeah. so let's get back to the Cardinals. Let's talk a little bit more positive. So ESPN.com did a piece earlier today. I thought it was an interesting way to look at it. The five teams most likely to break out in 2024. Now, Bradford Doolittle put together this piece over on ESPN, and uh, the teams that are listed are the Boston Red Sox at number one, number two, he's got the Mets, number three, the Pirates, number four, the Nationals, and at number five on this list, he had... The St. Louis Cardinals. Yes. Now, the reason why he has the Cardinals on this list is because their breakout trait is spending on free agents. Quote, the factor driving the Cardinals score is really just the projections category. The markets and forecasting systems alike just don't think that St. Louis's 2023 debacle reflects the actual quality of this team. The free agent component isn't a common driver of breakout success, but that doesn't mean that it never happens. The Cardinals haven't spent like the Dodgers or the Giants or even the Kansas City Royals, but they are one of seven teams with a free agency spending score at their highest. If nothing else, it reflects that the Cardinals brass thinks that this team can win now. Alex, I thought the more interesting part of this was what they compared the Cardinals to. So what they did is they said, okay, if the Cardinals do end up having a good season this year, they do become the breakout team of 2024. 
Who's the recent team that they would most closely resemble? What would it look like? And this is where I actually really disagree with them. They compared them to the 2019 Nationals. <laughs> Sorry. That's a good one. <laughs> who's our Max Scherzer? Hell, who's our uh, Anibal Sanchez? Oh, we got a couple of those guys. I'm telling like Anibal Sanchez, Kyle Gibson, yeah. and Lance Lynn, and Miles Michaelis. I think the problem is you have too many Anibal Sanchez. I can hear the argument for Miles Michaelis, but all the other ones, eh, maybe not so much. Washington tumbled to 82 wins in 2018 after winning 97 the previous season. That 2018 also had the ninth highest team age, so it wasn't a particularly young group. Nevertheless, the Nationals went big in free agency spending, adding Patrick Corbin and Brian Dozier, among others, and the end result was their first championship in franchise history. Alex, I've said this all along, and T-Bone, we've talked about this in the office as well. I I think that's crazy. Like Comparing them to the 2019 Nationals is absolute insanity. That team won because of their rotation. The Cardinals' biggest limitation right now is their rotation. If you're looking for a comparison for the 2024 St. Louis Cardinals, it's twofold in my opinion. It's the 2015 Kansas City Royals, and it's the 2023 Texas Rangers. That was the one that came up for me, too. Those are the two. That That is the corollary for what your team could look like if it goes well. This is not me telling you that they're going to win you know, 90, 95 games, and they're going to go to the World Series next year. I don't believe that. I think they're like 86 to 91 team right now, the favorite in the National League Central, but it says more about the Central than it does about them. But those are the two comparisons. Alex... Do you feel differently? Do, do you feel like those are the comparisons so, that would so, come to mind? So for you? 2023 Texas Rangers was the first one that came to mind because like you were relying so heavily on that offense and then you made the moves at the deadline. That would be a Cardinals way. I might be crazy on this one because I don't really remember much about it, but 2018 Boston Red Sox. Now th- they had a dominant year by Chris Sale. So that's going to be the tough part for you to accomplish. But I mean, I'm looking through their rotation. Like they had good seasons, but I think you could look at a Sonny Gray having a good season, like a Rick Porcello or, you know, a Miles Michaelis having a resurgent. But they, they relied solely on their bullpen and their offense, like with, with Mookie Betts and JD Martinez and Benetiendi and Rafael Dever, uh, Devers and Xander Bogarts. Like that was an offensive team. I was like, damn. And then their bullpen was really good. And they were they were solid in their rotation. That's the Mookie? other one. I, I, I guess Mookie at that point was like a top three player in Major League Baseball. I guess I'm hoping it's Jordan Walker. I'm hoping it's a Jordan Walker because you could go like Nolan Arenado with like a Devers that season, Xander Bogarts with like a or, I'm sorry, JD Martinez with a Paul Goldschmidt. You're really hoping on Nolan Gorman and Jordan Walker to be those breakout players on that roster in the offense. But like I'm looking at teams that were led solely off of their offense, and that's why I brought that 2018 Red Sox team up. How do you guys feel about comparing them to the 2013 St. Louis Cardinals? Uh, didn't we do this? Last they didn't year? win the World Series, man. So it doesn't. Count. I know, but they they went. Didn't we do this last year? <laughs> no, it was 2011 I mean, offense, last year. Yeah, I think the offense. Yeah, I think any- rotation wise, I think I could see it. The, the part I'm having and a that tough- rotation was Wayno. That's. The, the, the comparison for yeah. Wayno would be Sonny Gray. Just you actually have a back. closer comparison this year yeah. for the rotation than you did a year ago. Uh, Lance Lynn? <laughs> He's hey! Lance Lynn. hey. <laughs> Welcome back. Wait, Matt Carpenter was on that team, too. Shelby oh, Miller, sweet. who's probably... I mean, he had a he had a really good season that year. 3-1 ER. Probably and hoping I guess Miles Michaelis. The comparison probably Michaelis. Uh, Jake Westbrook, who's probably like... That's your Lance Lynn. Honestly, yeah, probably. <laughs> so and, you got to hope Kyle Gibson pitches like Lance Lynn in 2013. Yeah, and he, he gave you 200 innings and a 3.95 ERA. I, I could see that something similar yeah, to but, that, honestly. But then they had Michael Waka. 
And I don't know who's doing that. Yeah, for Joe you. Kelly as well. Um, yeah, and I don't know who's doing either of the and Jaime Garcia for a little bit there. I don't I mean, know who's doing any of that. Graceff, I mean, not, not to the point where he starts 15 games, but maybe Graceffo's the Joe Kelly because he's like a fireballer that's probably yeah. But see, go the problem is stints. the reason you went as far as you did was because of 2013 Michael Waka. And I don't think you have that pitcher on the seat. Now, if you could tell me that Tink Hens comes becomes that or TK Roby, but man, I don't buy into that with just the development of the Cardinals over these last few it's a, years. It's a fair point. And I think that is the biggest question for them is like who what's the infusion of talent? Yeah. What's where is the youth that is coming into this rotation? Because that is what that's what you had in twenty thirteen, is you had Joe Kelly, you had Michael Walker, you had Jaime Garcia, all of whom pitched when they were out there really well for the Cardinals. And then you had this like older aging veteran core with Wayno and I guess Lynn was technically young, but he pitched like a veteran. If you'll allow me to make that comparison. And then Jake Westbrook, it's like you had both sides of things for that Cardinals team. And then really it was driven by the offense. Like that was for all the talk about 2011 and all these different, that 2013 offense was as deep as you will find in recent Cardinals memory. Like the last 10 to 15 years of Cardinals baseball prior post MV three era. They, they all had really great seasons that year. And that's what I think you're hoping from this Cardinals offense. So 2013 Cardinals, uh, 2018 Red Sox to a degree, uh, 2023 Rangers, 2015 Royals. These are the comparisons. 2019 nationals. Oh boy. Yeah. That's a stinky comparison. And the tough part I'm having of finding the comparison. And I think like the Rangers, the Cardinals, like the offense we talked about this last week, Alex, and I did. You know, the the offense is the identity of what this off or this team is going to be because both the 2013 Cardinals and that tw- last year's Texas Rangers, seven of their nine regulars were above league average in terms of OPS plus. I could see where the Cardinals could end up having that to where their below league average positions are probably Tommy Edmond in center and Mason Wynn at shortstop. Right. The problem I'm having, and I think these teams prove this point again, is okay. I could see where you could have Sonny Gray be the Montgomery or Evaldi pick your poison from that 2013 car or that 2023 Rangers team. Same for that 2013 Cardinals team. Who's that second guy though, that can just take his game to another level. Once you get to the playoffs, I don't have it. And, and that's unless it's Michaelis, Michaelis has to be, the, they are putting a ton of pressure on miles. Michaelis right now. Have we yeah. seen him in the playoffs? Yeah, he was Michaelis, good. Yeah, he was good in the 2022 season when he pitched against Phillies. He made truly one mistake to Bryce Harper. Okay. Yeah. At, like left push stadium. Yeah, but right. other than that, like he's been good in the playoffs. So it, how much of our conversation about the you know, we got to get out of here. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll get to enter out of here in just a minute. But how much of our conversation about the Cardinals changes if I told you right now at the end of the season, Miles Michaelis has the exact same year that he did in 2022, 202 innings, 32 starts, 3.3 ERA. If I told you that is what you get out of Miles Michaelis and he literally was that pitcher in 2022. If I told you you're getting that guy again in 2024, how much of your belief in this team changes? I, I feel more confident. Like you said, they're what, an 86 91 team right now? Mm. I think that's fair. I'd probably lean more towards the 91 team side. I yeah. still don't know what the upside is in the playoffs because that pitch into contact scares the crap out of me just in general. But I, I could lean more towards like their 91 team if you got that version of Miles Michaelis. Yeah, I mean, at least you have, if you squint hard enough, you can get a one two punch of Sonny Ray and Miles Michaelis with those two pitchers. But I. I'm skeptical of that, but I also, like Tebow mentioned, I don't know what that looks like in the postseason because I've got two guys that have the inability to perform, or at least long-term to where you've seen it, long track record in the playoffs. Yeah. If you get if you get a 3-3 ERA for Miles Michaelis this year, I think Cardinals fans are going to be pretty thrilled with what the season ends up becoming. 
because then you've got Sonny Gray, Miles Michaelis, a legit one-two combination. Like, that's all-star numbers. He was an all-star that year. And if you get two guys that can pitch to that level, we don't have to talk about them not having a front-end starter. That being said, like, I'm incredibly skeptical of that. I thought that was lightning in a bottle. Every other season that he's had, really, here in St. Louis since that first year has been... Fine. He's been an innings eater. There's been nothing wrong with what you're getting out of Miles Michaelis, but it's a 4-1-4-2-3-3-4-8 ERA. One of these things is not like the others. And that's that's where you're at. You just have to assume that this year he's going to be closer to a four than he is a, a two. And that's that's where he's at at this point in his career. Coming up next, in or out here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with PK and Ferrario. Three one four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service tax line. If you got a scenario, we'll get to those coming up here in just a moment. But T-Bone said during the break, Alex, guys, I've got a good one for in or out. So we'll go to you first. This what do you isn't got? good. You should be ashamed of yourself. Now, follow along with me here for a second. Oh, okay. Jesus. We saw Jose Quintana get traded to the Cardinals and then serve as like a number one for mm-hmm. them and pitch really well in the playoffs and go through a hot stretch. In or out. Steven Matz can go on a run like, not for like a whole second half, but can go on a hot streak to where he could pitch like a Jordan Montgomery or a Nathan Avaldi had for the Texas Rangers and serves as that number two guy that I said they don't have. Out. I, I just don't think he can be consistent enough for you. I, I think you could get a spurt of it in the season, but I don't think you're going to get the same amount of stretch that you got with Jose Quintana. And, and that's not what I, I, I want to say. Can he go on like a seven game stretch right. to where coming out of the regular the season, he gets hot in the oh, postseason? It, okay, well, I can he also, be your branded fat? Yeah. Fat. Come on, man. I also don't think he could do it in the playoffs. So I would say I'm out on this. So there's context to what I'm about to say, and I will add that, I promise. But. His final nine starts of the season last year, his final seven starts of the season last year, 38 innings, 1.8 ERA. So is he capable of doing what you're talking about? Yeah. So I will say in that he is capable of that. And I don't know that there's any other starter currently in the rotation, not named Sonny Gray, that is capable of that because of the lack of swing and miss stuff. If you're looking for that, it's Steven Matz. He's the one that gives you that kind of upside. That being said, here are the teams that he started against in that stretch of games. Chicago White Sox, Washington, Chicago Cubs, Arizona. Against Arizona, six innings, five hits, zero earned runs, six strikeouts, one walk. So that is the one that you'd point to and say, all right, maybe something did actually click, and it's not just the teams that he went up against. But then it continues. The Cubs, the Rockies, and the Royals. He did not exactly go up against a murderer's row of lineups in that stretch of games. But if you're excited, if you're optimistic about what he can be for the Cardinals in 2024, it would be because of what you saw at the end of his season last year after he came out of the bullpen once again. So I'm in that he can do this. I don't think you can expect it for the entirety of the regular season. That's where Alex, I do agree with. He's too inconsistent for that. But in a five-game stretch in the postseason, sure, he could have some upside for you. And I think you bringing up Brandon Fought was the perfect example of how you'd hope this would play out, is Gray is game one, you find that guy for game two, and then you hope that Matt can go on just that five-game stretch or seven-game stretch.
perfect time. And you keep them healthy in the regular season. You get like 150 innings out of them. And then you get to the playoffs and you go, go give us five innings, strike out like seven guys, and we're going to the pen the second time or the third time through the order. I'd be more likely to say in if you would have said Zach Thompson instead of Steven Matz. Oh, interesting. I I think a Zach Thompson could come on late and then surprise a lot of people in the playoffs. I I like Thompson. I don't think he has that ceiling. I I just don't. He doesn't have the swing and miss, in my opinion. Matt, though Matt's, and I totally agree with you, too inconsistent. Man, when he is right, I mean, you mentioned it, that wasn't murderous role, but when he is right, he does have legitimate swing and miss stuff and can shove for five or six innings. I think that signing gets kind of like lumped into the Brett Cecil, Greg Holland, failed Cardinals offseason signings, and it's not. It should be put into a different category. It's put into a category of like injuries have derailed what he's been so far as a Cardinal, yeah. and they should have known that he had a lot of injuries that he dealt with for the entirety of his career prior to literally the season before he signed here in St. Louis. That was the story of Steven Matz. And can you keep him healthy for the entire season is going to be the real question heading into 2024. The answer is probably no. But if you can get him healthy at the right time, maybe he can be that X factor that they're looking for in their rotation. All right, Alex, in or out? The Lions are actually the better team going into this weekend's NFC Championship game than the 49ers. I'm going to say in on this one, and uh, I'm going to probably be the crazy one, especially on the outcome of this one. But, man, I've become a Lions fan. Uh, I, I think they're one of those teams that just has the right mindset going into a playoff game, and they're going to be tough to play against. Now, they're going to have to go on the road, and they've had both of these victories at home. How do they look on the road? That's going to be my biggest question. But if Debo Samuel's not available, we just saw what that offense looks like. Like, Brock Purdy looks very scattered when they don't have their best weapon out there, and the Detroit Lions, although they suck at the pass defense, they're very good at stopping the run. So you're going to force Brock Purdy to throw the ball? I, I think Detroit actually wins this game. So I'm going to stick with my lines here and say I am, uh, I'm in on this. I'm out. I think the 49ers have the best complete roster in the NFL. Now, I do think the Lions have the best quarterback playing this weekend in that matchup. But overall, that roster is way better on San Francisco. They've got a great defense. They've got great weapons. Even without Debo, they've got great weapons around Brock Purdy. Purdy's the, the question mark, but I think that roster can overcome any of his flaws. Detroit's secondary is so bad, I could get open running or out, and that's a major concern, so I'm out on this one. I'm out as well. I think San Francisco's better. I think one of the biggest overreactions that I've seen to this past weekend is that the 49ers are now like not as good as the Detroit Lions, and they're an underwhelming... No, man. They, they ran up against a team that got really hot. The, the Packers struck and surprised the Dallas Cowboys, and then they did the same thing against the 49ers. The 49ers still found a way to come out on top. Now, they nearly lost it, probably should have lost it. Jordan Love got overly anxious at the end of the game, and that's why the 49ers were able to seal the deal, but they found a way to come come away with a win, and that's all that matters in these games. It's survive and advance. I still think they are the better team. Lions secondary is... I think it's held together with toothpicks and bubblegum right now, and I don't think that's going to be good enough against this 49ers offense. Alex, what do you got for us? Uh, in or out, guys. C.J. Stroud wins more Super Bowls than Josh Allen. Out. Ooh. Oh. It was quick. Because none win? It's really hard to win a Super Bowl, man. And I think Allen can do it. Mm. I think C.J. Stroud could do it over Allen. See, I, I'm in on this. I... I think the one flaw that we have with Josh Allen, and I'm not even saying, like, this could be, like, one Super Bowl to none. Um, That's kind of what my mindset was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for one, that was also my mindset. <laughs> the, the the one flaw for Allen, and, and he played great in that game yesterday, but you saw him get a little 
kind of anxious at the end there and not continue to play that perfect football. I'll take what they give me. And yes, his wide receivers did kill him a little bit. I think for Stroud, I think, well, for Allen, we've said, and we said in the regular season, Allen can win you some games you're not supposed to win, and he can lose you games you're not supposed to lose. I I think Stroud doesn't have that. I think Stroud's a guy that's going to take care of the football, be methodical with the football, and not make the mistakes that we see from Josh Allen to where I could see where he can win a Super Bowl ahead of Josh Allen. Maybe I got my Stroud blinders on, but I think if they were at full strength in that game against Baltimore, it would have been more of a competition, and I could have seen a scenario where Houston came out of victory. And if you're talking about an AFC championship game against the Chiefs for the Texans in year one, you're talking the same way we were talking about Joe Burrow with the Cincinnati Bengals. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for in or out. Guys, in or out, the Blues will shop Colton Pareko at the trade deadline. Out. Out. I'll let you cook on this one. This is dumb. Like, and I understand. I saw somebody put it out there that David Panyota reported it. Look, David Panyota, he had it on his list that he is on the trade watch list, but it's because everybody with the Blues is on the trade watch list. And who's the most desirable player right now? Colton Pareko. You're not trading Colton Pareko. Just like you're not trading Jordan Jordan Bennington. Oh. No, you don't trade them. That should be your reaction. There's three guys on this team that you don't trade. Bennington, Pareko, and Robert Thomas. If you want to talk about anybody else on this roster, I'll listen to it. But every time you trade away a six-foot-six defenseman that shuts down the other team's best lines for six and a half million dollars... You're looking for that same guy. So get the hell out of here. Colton Pareko is going to finish his career in St. Louis. Can we just leave it at that? Yeah. 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 Next no. question. What, what he said. Let's move on. Three one four. I'm ashamed of all of you. Nine six four six is the error comfort service text line for in or out. Guys, final thing here. In or out. When we look back at this season, it will be remembered as the greatest accomplishment of Patrick Mahomes' career. I'll say I'm out. Because I don't know what the remainder of his career is going to look like. And if you get some really good quarterback matchups down the stretch, you look back at it and you say like, oh, wow. Like, I think this is at it stands now the best, but I don't know what it's going to look like for the next three to four years with Patrick Mahomes and this Chiefs team. Depends how it, it, it finishes. If That's he wins the say. Super Bowl, I think this will probably be remembered as his greatest accomplishment because dragging this specific team to the Super Bowl and the path that they went I mean, through. They don't even know how to line up off on side. Yeah, Correct. Kadarius Tony's not allowed to play. I mean, they, they went through, say what you will about the injuries, they went through the Dolphins who were one of the most explosive offenses in the NFL this year and shut them down completely. They went up against the Buffalo Bills, who were everybody's darling heading into the playoffs and and found a way to throw that one. And then if they also go through the Ravens on the road, first time that he's had to go on the road through these, didn't have the bye this time around, and you find a way to get through all of that and then get through one of the 49ers or the Lions, yeah, that's... That's an incredibly difficult path to winning the Super Bowl, and it's, I think, the worst overall team that he's had uh, in his career in Kansas City as well. I think it will be remembered, at least to me, as the uh, the 2018-19 Super Bowl should be for, for Tom Brady, where he got through Kansas City in Mahomes' first year as a starter, and to me, that was like, oh, this is it. Nobody's going to be better. Because that, that that Kansas City offense was amazing that season, dude. And I thought they were going to find a way to win that one. It was Gronk was on his last legs. Edelman wasn't the same. The offense was like sp- kind of sputtering out all season long. And then Brady just comes in and reminds everybody, I'm the greatest to ever do this. And he he reminds Mahomes, you've still got some, some time to learn, young pup. And that was, to me, the defining moment for Brady. Um, I, if, if Mahomes does that this year, 
it will be remembered as 2019 yeah. was for Brady. Can, I think if, they, if he doesn't win the Super Bowl, first off, this is an incredible accomplishment. They're even in the AFC Championship game. It's not going to be able to top their last championship where that was supposed to be kind of that retool year for the Chiefs, and they still won it all. Remember Mahomes going like, oh, we proved it to everybody. Yeah, yeah. I, I, he can only top that by winning this Super Bowl. Okay. Can I throw one more real quick? Hurry up. In or out. The, uh, the cruelest thing that happened from last night was some fan walking into a Bills bar and turning on Taylor Swift on repeat. Oof. Man, oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> Have you seen the video of this? This guy's head is down. He's like sobbing at the bar, and someone went in and just kept playing Taylor Swift on the jukebox on repeat. Dude, I, I felt <laughs> that is just awful. I felt really bad for Bills fans yesterday. That sucks. Losing that way at home against, against Mahomes again, third time in the last four years. Like, it's the same thing. That happens over and over mm. again. And this time his team was bad, and you're at home. Mm. And Allen is, like, putting it all together. He's not making mistakes for three quarters. He's perfect. And you've got this entire thing set up, and, like, you had all of the adversity midway through the year. Your coach is talking about, like, 9-11 stuff, and then they find a way through that, which is kind of weird that that became yeah. the adversity <laughs> that they had to fight through, that but it is weird. what it is. Like, all of this stuff is, like, you're finally through it. And then he does it again. Just, I love the Grim Reaper is standing there at the end of the door once again. I climbed up pain. the mountain and then Mahomes shoved you right oh. back off of it. Oh. It's I, I love pain. It's great. Abs- I mean, you, there were people that really went out there for the last two weeks and shoveled out their seat <laughs> to sit and watch that in the freezing ass cold and to watch Jason Kelsey and Taylor Swift celebrate in their su- their suite that very much resembled a 1957. Uh, like outdoor loft, I suppose. I the first camera shot thing. after Bass missed the field goal was a fan going, "Are you bleeping kidding me?" Yeah, that was tough, man. The, the uh, guy that was standing there with the sobbing, tears, oh, sobbing into his hands. You feel bad for him. Yeah, I don't feel bad, but Coming I also next, felt good too. Who's the player that changed your opinion of them the most so far this postseason? Could be good, could be bad. We'll tell you next here on One Hundred and One ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Four games, eight quarterbacks, seven terrific quarterbacks and Brock Purdy. Now, Brock Purdy is a good quarterback. Make no mistake about it. Everybody be calm, 49er fans. I'm not suggesting Brock's not a good quarterback. He is. I simply don't put him in the same category as the other quarterbacks. So I'll say it again. Eight quarterbacks, seven terrific quarterbacks, and Brock Purdy. That was Amy Trask, former NFL front office executive on CBS Sports Radio alongside Alex and T-Bone on BK. Alex, I think for T-Bone, that's his takeaway oh, me from too. the first couple of rounds of the postseason. If there's one player that has changed your opinion of them the most thus far, for you guys, it appears to be Brock Purdy. And that sure seems to be Amy Trask's opinion of the matter as well. Get it. Alex, let's start with you. 
Why do you feel like he has underwhelmed relative to your expectations? Because I think when you take one piece away from Brock Purdy's team, he struggles. I mean, the three games that he was bad in this season was when Debo Samuel was out of the lineup for them. Debo Samuel left in that game against uh, or over the weekend, and he was bad once again. Like I, I think Brock Purdy is only as successful as his counterparts, and that's everybody on the field with him. But I also think Brock Purdy just fits into the Kyle Shanahan system. And if you lose something, a part of that system, well, then you don't know how to adapt to it that's why I truly think that the better quarterback in that game is Jared Goff yeah and, and that's where I am I, I I saw him play over the weekend and yes you lose Debo Simeon don't get me wrong that is a big piece of the offense the offense shouldn't look that clunky though when he goes out considering you still have still. George Kittle Brandon I Christian McCaffrey yeah. and a really good offensive line right and he was missing throws and look I get it it was raining in San Francisco I totally understand it rains so, there a lot though it was raining and Jordan Love looked pretty good too so I I, I just looked at Brock Purdy, and I think he's a good quarterback, but I don't know if he'll ever be viewed as a top 10 quarterback until he starts to win when one of these pieces go away. They had that three-game losing streak in the middle of the season, and that showed you right there, hey, it's the pieces. Brock Purdy can't go win a game when it's needed if he doesn't have the full cast around him, and I felt that way watching them this weekend when Debo went down, and that's why I agree with Alex. I think going into this weekend, I expect Jared, I view Jared Goff as the better quarterback in that matchup. I've heard a lot of people say something to the effect of the 49ers should try to go get like Kirk Cousins or one of these other quarterbacks that's out. They can't. That's the problem. They can't. One of the reasons why Brock Purdy is the quarterback for them is because they need a cheap quarterback in place to be able to pay all of these guys around never him say never man somebody like Christian McCaffrey and George Kittle and Brandon Ayuk when he's going to get a big contract soon and Debo Samuel in place and you've got an all-star left tackle and you've got all this star talent on the defensive side of the ball for all of that to work you have to pay your quarterback peanuts and that is why Brock Purdy will continue being in place as the quarterback for the 49ers I don't feel like we've learned anything about him in this postseason, I think he is exactly who I thought he was. I never was overly excited about who Brock Purdy is. I think he's in a great situation and he's like the 13th to 15th best quarterback in the league on any given day. And if you put somebody in that range of quarterback on that team, I think they pretty much have the same amount of success. Like if Dak Prescott was a quarterback for the 49ers, I think they get better. If you put Kirk Cousins as the quarterback of the 49ers. I think they're slightly better than what they are right now with um, Brock Purdy as their guy. But I don't think there's any way to make that change. And I don't think there's anybody that's coming available that is cheap that would definitely be an improvement upon what they already have with Brock Purdy. So he's their guy, whether they like it or not. The guy that I learned the most about is Jordan Love. Jordan Love went for me from being a guy that I think is like in that 20 to 30 range of, eh, he's a starter or whatever. You pay him 20 million bucks. You can find it and find a way to make it work. Dude, Jordan Love in this postseason show this. There's a ceiling with what he can be in the NFL. Now, he's a trick shot artist. And when those trick shots are hitting, it looks damn good like it did against the Cowboys. And when it goes the other way and he gets a little overly anxious at the end of a game, it can look like it did against the 49ers where he makes the throw that nobody else would or should make. So for me, the guy that I feel like I've learned the most about this postseason is your love. And that's a great thing if you're a Packers fan. The other one should be Jared Goff, because Jared Goff in these last two games has proven he, so? he can win in the playoffs. Yeah, I, I do think so. And I think he's going to put up a good performance against the 49ers. And I think that's going to change the impression of a lot of people. Do you feel like he is different now than he was when he was with the uh, with the Rams? Because I don't. I feel like he's the same guy today that he was then. If I, he's protected well, if things are in place around him, he can go out there and have success. And if he's not, if those things fall apart a bit, 
I, I think he can continue having the same pitfalls. But and we, it's why I don't like them this weekend, frankly. Against but the we talked about it earlier. Like, the reason he was gone from the Rams was because he couldn't make those big throws when he needed to. And I think he's made those big throws in two, two, uh, two similar games in a playoff series. Like, I think that's important. That shows the growth of Jared Goff. I, I think he's slightly better than he was when he was with the Rams because he can make the big throw now without pressure. He, sometimes he would miss that in L.A., but you're still right. I mean, the whole game plan against Jared Goff is to blitz him, and, and he's not going to do well against the blitz. Um, but I think I think he has solidified himself as the franchise guy in Detroit. I agree Mo- with that. Mostly because I, I look at it and go, okay, sure, you could move on from him, but the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Agreed. And I, I think when you surround him with good weapons like they have, I think you're 100% right. If he's got weapons around him, he can get you to a Super Bowl. Now, can he win the Super Bowl? I don't know, but he can at least get you there. Coming up next, we'll hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind with our final thoughts coming off of the weekend that was in the NFL here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Gloria Loom, your home sold guaranteed realty. Selling your home begins at GloriaHasTheBuyers.com. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check out the podcast page 101ESPN.com. And the free 101ESPN app is where you go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. What the hell? I got to be honest with you. I didn't even realize why you were upset with me until after I realized what I had just done. That's on you know me. What? I'm still on pro- partial vacation mode, clearly. I'm, I'm out. It's a bad job by me. It's all presented by. Nope. Not doing it. <laughs> nope. Not doing it. You guys can always check us out as well on YouTube at youtube.com slash 101 ESPN STL. Alex, final thought on the weekend that was in the NFL. Come on, man. We're done talking about the Chiefs. No, they won. Have to go there. No, we wait. can move on. Again, you can have anything. Your, your biggest takeaway from this past weekend was what? I th- think it was the, the quarterbacks that are moving on to the next one. And I think my bigger takeaway is the fact that the Super Bowl probably is going to be the AFC championship game. <laughs> I don't think the Super Bowl is going to be as enter- entertaining as Ravens and Chiefs this weekend. Like on the AFC side, regardless of who you wanted to win, I think the best teams won in that side of the the, the coin because those are going to be the most compelling matchups compared to the Detroit Lions. Like, I like Detroit and San Francisco, but Baltimore-Kansas City is it. It's funny, because my biggest takeaway is, I don't sure Baltimore has the offense to go win a Super Bowl, and I'm not sure that the one-seed San Francisco 49ers have the quarterback to go win the Super Bowl. It's weird how I left the weekend with the two one-seeds, yeah. raising more questions right. for me. I think this was a confirmation of what we've been saying all year long. Every single one of these teams is flawed in some way. Yep. Every single one of them, and it's going to take one of those teams to find the best way to mask their deficiencies to be able to win the Super Bowl. And that's why I find the Chiefs right now to be such a compelling case is because their biggest issue often was offense. And on offense, they have Travis Kelsey, a future Hall of Famer, Andy Reid, one of the best offensive minds of the entire history of the NFL, and Patrick Mahomes, who's one of the five greatest quarterbacks already in the history of the league. And when you have those things in place, that makes me feel much more confident about them finding answers than, for example, like the Baltimore Ravens with their offense. So going to be a fun week of talking about what lies ahead for Alex and T-Bone on BK. The fast lane coming up next. If you missed our conversation with Matt Carpenter today, you'll hear us ask all of the hard-hitting questions that needed to be asked BK and Ferrario. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.